The following is a conversation with Vincent Racaniello, professor of microbiology and immunology at Columbia. Vincent is one of the best educators in biology and in general that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. I highly recommend you check out his This Week in Virology podcast and watch his introductory lectures on YouTube. In particular, the playlist I recommend is called Virology Lectures 2021. To support this podcast, please check out the sponsors in the description. As a side note, please allow me to say a few words about the COVID vaccines. Some people are scared of a virus hurting or killing somebody they love. Some are scared of their government betraying them, their leaders blinded by power and greed. I have both of these fears. And two, I'm afraid, as FDR said, of fear itself. Fear manifests as anger, and anger leads to division in the hands of charismatic leaders, who then manufacture truth, in quotes, that maximize controversy and a sense of imminent crisis that only they can save us from. And though I'm sometimes mocked for this, I still believe that love, compassion, empathy is the way out from this vicious downward spiral of division. I personally took the vaccine based on my understanding of the data, deciding that for me, the risk of negative effects from COVID, short-term and long-term, are far worse than the negative effects from the mRNA vaccine. I read, I thought, I decided, for me. But I never have, and never will, talk down to people who don't take the vaccine. I'm humble enough to know just how little I know, how wrong I have been and will be on many of my beliefs and ideas. I think dogmatic certainty and division is more destructive in the long term than any virus. The solution for me personally, like I said, is to choose empathy and compassion towards all fellow human beings, no matter who they voted for. I hope you do the same. Read, think, and try to imagine that what you currently think is the truth may be totally wrong. This mindset is one that opens you to discovery, innovation, and wisdom. I hope my conversation with Vincent Racaniello is a useful resource for just this kind of exploration. He doesn't talk down to people, and he's the most knowledgeable virologist I've ever spoken to. He has no political agenda, no desire to mock those who disagree with him. He just loves biology and explaining the fundamental mechanisms of how biological systems work. That's a great person to listen to and learn from with an open mind. I hope you join me in doing so, and no matter what, try to put more love out there in the world. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, so hopefully you don't skip, but if you do, please still check out the sponsor links in the description. It is in fact the best way to support this podcast. I use their stuff and enjoy it, maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by a new sponsor, Privacy. I love these guys. It's a brilliant idea, brilliant implementation. I can't believe this hasn't already been done, especially as well as they have done it. So the idea is they generate a virtual card by generating virtual numbers that serves as this layer that interfaces with the internet when you're trying to pay for stuff. And then your actual debit card or your bank account information is kept private. I've had the same feeling when I first started using password managers many years ago, as opposed to using, you know, like password one, two, three, four, 
or some equivalent of for everywhere. The same thing here with privacy and cards. It seems ridiculous to me that you will be providing the same number for your debit card or for your bank account information on every website. Some websites have great security, some don't, and you don't know which one is which, and all it takes is the one weak link through which your information will leak. This is why the idea and the implementation of privacy is just brilliant. I'm a huge supporter of these guys. You should head to privacy.com slash Lex and sign up for an account. The sign up is pretty simple. You provide the funding source, whether it's a debit card or your bank account, and you get $5 to spend on your first purchase. Again, the whole thing is super easy. Definitely a service you should be using. Go to privacy.com slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by JustWorks, which is an HR platform that makes it simple to onboard and manage remote employees. They help with employment and tax regulations and requirements, give access to national health insurance plans, help set up sick leave policies, you know, take care of time tracking that syncs with payroll, plus give you access 24 seven to expert support. If you know about this stuff, hopefully you realize that all of this HR stuff is a giant mess, it's very painful, and it's really nice when you have a platform that makes it super easy to take care of it. I'm now in the process of building an amazing team of people uh, around this podcast thing, around videos and stuff, and also hoping to launch a startup. And man, this whole process of human resources, of managing people, like the administrative stuff, is just, uh, that's so over my head. And I wanna make sure that I'm focusing on the engineering. I'm focusing on the building, on the ideas. And the actual like HR mess is taken care of by great tools and great people. So JustWorks, I think, is a is a great tool for this job. Manage your remote team and run your business with confidence by going to JustWorks.com. That's JustWorks.com. This show is also brought to you by Sunbasket. They deliver fresh, healthy, delicious meals straight to your door, starting at only $8.99 per meal. They have prepared meals, meal kits, raw ingredients, all of which are delicious. It's great ingredients combined together artfully by uh, excellent chefs. And the final thing is super easy. You know, I think just the actual act of eating is um, is a source of joy and happiness for a lot of people. I know it is for me. You know, food connects people, drink connects people. So all that said, except for special occasions, I think the preparation, the administrative processes of getting to the prepared meal should be made as efficient as possible because the source of joy for me at least, most of the time is the eating, not the preparation, except when you're talking about Thanksgiving or all those kinds of things. So if you want to make it efficient to get to the goal, which is eating a delicious, healthy meal, then I think Sun Basket is a service you should consider. And right now, they're offering $90 off for your first four deliveries, including free shipping on the first box when you go to sunbasket.com slash Lex and enter code Lex. That's sunbasket.com slash Lex and enter code Lex. This show is sponsored by The Information. They do in-depth, data-driven, investigative journalism in the world of technology. The Information was actually the first place when I realized that... Uh, Good journalism costs money. I don't always agree with the writing they do or what certain aspects of the articles they put out, but I think they're all exceptionally well-researched and I always learn something. And the other 
I think important thing to consider is that the information is also something that other big people in the technology space read. So it's, it's nice to make sure that among the sources of information you take in, there's some overlap with the other big players in the technology game. So agree or disagree, you're operating with good facts and the facts that others are operating with. Again, if you care about the world of technology, this is an amazing source of information, of journalism, journalism done right. It costs money, but it's worth it. Get 75% off your first month if you sign up at theinformation.com slash lex. That's theinformation.com slash lex. I see it as a good way of supporting in-depth journalism. I hope you do as well. This show is also brought to you, Athletic Greens. I've already drank it twice today. It's an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. They make it so easy for you to cover all your nutritional bases. With all the crazy diet stuff I do, with uh, you know doing carnivore, doing keto, with just um, crazy hours of focus, you know, forgetting to eat sometimes, all those kinds of things, I go to Athletic Greens to ensure that I'm getting the nutrients I need. Also, it's delicious. I actually, um, especially when I'm doing workouts, I'll put it in the freezer and let it get like very cold. It's almost like a slushy after about 30 minutes. And that's something I really like to drink uh, after a run in the sort of uh, Texas heat when I run in the afternoon. It's just really refreshing, makes me feel re-energized, and like I said, helps you get uh, all the vitamins you need. Anyway, they'll give you one month supply of fish oil, something I also take every day. When you sign up to athleticgreens.com slash Lex, that's athleticgreens.com slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Vincent Racaniello. You mentioned in one of your lectures on virology that there are more viruses in a liter of coastal seawater than people on Earth. In the Nature article titled Microbiology by Numbers, it says there are 10 to the 31 viruses on Earth. Also, it says <laughs> that the rate of viral infection in the ocean stands at 10 to the 23 infections per second. And these infections remove 20 to 40% of all bacterial cells <laughs> each day. There's a war going on. Do you, uh, what do you make of these numbers? Well, why are there so many viruses? So the, the numbers you're quoting, they're in my first virology lecture, right? Because yeah. people don't know these numbers and they get, wow, they get wowed by them. So I love to give them. So by the, the way, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but as I was saying uh, offline, you have one of the best introductory lectures on virology that uh, I've ever seen, introductory lectures period. So I highly recommend people find you on YouTube and watch it if you're curious at all about viruses. It, it, uh, it Yeah, there's a lot of times throughout watching it, I felt like, whoa. Yeah, that's my goal is to, <laughs> and, and it's what my students tell me. One student once said, I, every day after every lecture, I could go home and tell my roommate something she didn't know. Yeah. And, and blew her away. So the number of viruses is really an amazing number. So that number, 10 to the 31, is actually 
just the bacterial viruses in the ocean. So there are viruses that infect everything on the planet, including bacteria. There are a lot of bacteria in the ocean. And so 10 to the 31 is from basically particle counts of seawater all over the world. So there are more viruses than 10 to the 31, but just in the ocean. And that number is so big. First of all, the mass exceeds that of elephants on the planet by a thousandfold. And if you lined up those viruses end to end, they would go 200 million light years mm-hmm. into space. It's so big a number. It's it's amazing. And then, yes, 10 to the 20-some infections per second of these viruses killing bacteria and releasing all this organic matter. And that's part of this, what we call the biogeochemical pump, cycling of material in the ocean. The bacteria die. They start to sink, and then they get metabolized and converted to, to compounds that, that are needed. A lot of it gets released as carbon dioxide and so forth. So these are actually really important cycles that are catalyzed by the virus. Well, it's so wild that nature has developed a mechanism for mass murder of well, bacteria. That's one, that's one way to look at it, but it's just what happened, right? <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, uh, I wonder what the evolutionary advantage of like such fast cycling of life is. Is it just an accident of evolution that viruses are so numerous? Or is it, um, is, it, uh, is it a feature, not a bug? So the, the fast is, it, range, it does not all fast. Not all viruses are fast. Some are 20 minutes per cycle. Some take weeks per cycle. Um, but that's just per second. There's so many viruses in the ocean that that's what you get per second, no matter how fast right. the cycle is. <laughs> but the, I look at it this way. Viruses were probably the first organic entities to evolve on the planet. Long ago, billions, billion years ago, just as the earth cooled and organic molecules began to form, I think these self, we call them self-replicators. They're just short things that today would look like RNA, which is the basis of many viruses, right? They evolved and they were able to replicate. Of course, they were just naked molecules. They had no protection. And it was just RNA-based. And that's tough because RNA is pretty fragile in the, in the world. And um, it probably didn't get very big as a consequence. But then proteins evolved. And I'm skipping like hundreds of millions of years of evolution. Proteins evolved, maybe without a cell, maybe with a cell. But then to make a cell, there probably were some RNA-based cells early on, but they were pretty simple. But the cells that we know of today, even bacteria and, and single-celled eukaryotes, mm-hmm. they have very long DNA genomes. And you need a lot of DNA to make a complicated cell. And so we think at some point the RNA became DNA. And probably one of the earliest enzymes that arose is the enzyme that could copy that RNA into DNA, which we now know today as reverse transcriptase, which my former boss David Baltimore and Howard Temin co-discovered. And that that enzyme arose and copied RNA to DNA, and then you could build big cells with because DNA can be millions and millions of bases in length. And RNA, the, the longest RNA we know of is 40,000 uh, bases, not much bigger than the SARS-CoV-2. What would you say is the magic moment along that line? I saw it was... Um one or two billion, maybe three billion years it took 
to go from bacteria to to like complex organism. Like it seems like Earth had a very long time, like not a very long time without life, mm-hmm. and then a very long time with very primitive life. Um, maybe I'm discriminating, calling bacteria primitive life. Yeah, but, people would object to you yeah. <laughs> doing that for sure. <laughs> but it seems like complex organisms when you start, starts becoming something like um, I don't know what's a good uh, not animal like, but more complexity than just like a single cell. Um, what what do you think is the magic there? What's the hardest thing if you were trying to engineer Earth and build life and build the simulations? Obviously, we're living in a video game. What this is, mm. so if you're trying to build this video, what's the hardest part along so, this evolution? So pathway? bacteria are mostly single cells. They do make colonies. They get together in biofilms, which are really important. But they're all single bacteria in that, and the key is making an organism where cells do different things. You know, We have skin cells and eye cells and brain cells. Bacteria never do that. And the reason is probably energy. Bacteria don't, can't make enough energy to do that. And so there was another cell existing at the time, the archaea. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that a bacteria went into an archaea and became the modern-day mitochondria, the energy factory of the cell. And that now led that cell develop into more and more complicated organisms like we have today. It was all about energy. So the mitochondria, the energy, uh, the mitochondria is the magic thing. I think so. It's actually not my idea. It's Nick Jones. Have you heard of Nick Jones? He's an evolutionary biologist in the UK. And he's he's done experimental work on this. And it's his idea that the defining point was the ability to make a lot of energy, which a mitochondria can do. It's basically a whole bacteria inside of a, a bigger cell, and that becomes what we now call eukaryotes, and uh, uh, that they can get more and more complicated. So let me bring you back to the viruses. I want to yes. finish that story. Yeah, which points of viruses come along? So remember, we have these precellular, they're called precellular replicons, right? And um, so we have a precellular f- stage where we have these self-replicating molecules, and then cells arise, and then the self-replicating molecules invade the cells. Why? Because it's a hospitable environment. I mean, they didn't know that. They just went in and it turned out it was beneficial for them, so it stuck. And they replicate inside the cell now where they have pools of everything they need. They get more and more complicated. And then they steal proteins from the cell to build a protective shell. And then they can be released as virus particles. They're now protected. They can move from host to host. And because they're at the earliest stages of cellular evolution, they can diversify to, to infect anything that arises. And that is why I think <laughs> there's so many of them and everything on the planet is infected because the ancestor of everything was infected many years ago. So it's easier to steal than to build from scratch. So like it's easier to sort of break into somebody else's thing and yes. steal their proteins. Yes. <laughs> My colleague Dixon de Pommier calls viruses safe crackers. Safe crackers. So <laughs> it's just uh, from an evolutionary perspective, it's yeah, it's it's easier to steal because you can select, but then you have to figure out mechanisms for stealing, for breaking into, for, for cracking the safe. Well, you don't have to figure out; it just happens, right? Because molecules are so diverse that a molecule gets into a cell, and if there's a protein that sticks to it, it's going to stick. And that gives an advantage. There's no, you know, there's no planning. There's no thinking about it, right? It just 
happens. Oh, we'll return to that. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, but, but these numbers are crazy. So what, as these uh, more complex organisms evolved, uh, let's take us humans as an example, uh, should we be afraid of these high numbers? Should we be worried that there's so many viruses in the world? Well, to a certain extent, I mean, they have, it's twofold. They're good and bad, right? Viruses are no, there's no question they can be bad. We know that because they've infected and caused disease throughout history. But we're also, you and I are full of viruses that don't hurt us at all and probably help us. And every organism is the same. So they are clearly beneficial as a consequence. So I think, so every living thing on the planet has multiple viruses infecting everything you can see. And most of them, I think we don't worry about because they can't infect us. They're unable. In fact, now you could actually you can actually take your feces and send them to a company, and they will sequence your viruses in your feces for you, your mm -hmm. fecal virome, right? And the most common virus in human feces is a plant virus that infects peppers. It's called pepper model mosaic virus. And that's because people eat a lot of peppers mm -hmm. and it just passes right through you. Cabbage is full of viruses from the insects that walk on the cabbage in the fields. We eat them, they just pass us. So I think most of the viruses we don't need to worry about, except when we're talking about species that are closest to us, mammals, of course. I, I th and I think the most numerous ones are the most concerning. They're viruses like bats. Bats are 20% of mammals, and rodents are 40% of mammals. Wow. And we humans live nearby, right? Yeah. And we know throughout history, many viruses have come from bats and from rodents to people. No question so about it. So there's a proximity in terms of just living together and a proximity genetically too. So it's more likely that a virus will That's jump right. from a bat and a rodent. And birds too. Birds can give us their viruses. That's happened. You know, influenza viruses uh, come from birds mainly. So I think those are the three species, I, not species, it's higher than species, obviously, but those are the three I would worry about in terms of getting their viruses. And we don't really know what's out there, right? We have very little clue about what viruses, and I've for years wanted to capture wild mice in my backyard and see what viruses they have, because no one knows. We, <laughs> and it's an we easy, can't ask them. So you mean map? Uh, like, is there? I can't ask them. Yeah. No, I have to. Would have to sacrifice them and take tissue and then bring it in the lab and do genome sequencing. So you can do a, a thorough sequencing to determine yeah. which viruses. Is there a sufficiently good ca categorization of viruses where you'd be? Uh, that's a very good question. So whenever you do sequence, right? You get some environmental sample and you extract nucleic acid and you sequence it. What you do is you run it past the database. The gold standard is the GenBank database, which is maintained here in the U.S. And you see if you get any hits. And then you can say, ah, look, this, this sequence is similar to this virus. And you can classify all the viruses you see. The problem is 90% of your sequence is dark matter. It doesn't hit with anything. It's probably a lot of it is unknown viruses. And that's going to be hard to figure out because someone's going to have to go after it and sort it through. So yes, you can find a lot of viruses and the numbers you get are astounding. You can find thousands of new viruses just by looking in various life forms, but there are many more that we don't pick up because they're not in the database. Maybe this is a, a good time to take a quick tangent. What do you think about AlphaFold too? I don't know if you've been paying attention mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. With the, them, uh, DeepMind solving the protein folding problem. 
and then also releasing, well, first of all, open sourcing the code, which is for me as a software person that mm. I love. And then second of all, also making like 300,000 predictions or something like that for different protein structures and releasing that data. Yeah. Uh, so on the side of, cause you're make you're saying there's dark matter, right? Like, is there something, um, what, first, what are your general thoughts, level of excitement about their, uh, their work? And second, how can that be applied to viruses? Do you think we'll be able to explore the dark matter of virology using yeah, machine learning? Absolutely, because in all this dark sequence, you can translate it and make a protein. You can see what a protein looks like. It has what we call an open reading frame, right? Mm -hmm. A start and a stop. And right now it's just a bunch of amino acids. But if we could fold it, maybe the fold would would be like something we already know, some mm. protein fold, which gives you a lot of clues, right? Because there are only so many protein folds uh, in biology and that dark matter is probably one of them. So I think that's very exciting because for years I've followed structural biologists for years and you know, in the beginning we couldn't even solve structures of viruses, yeah. they're too big. We could do small molecules like myoglobin, like that was the first one done, took years to do that. And then as computational power increased, then they could start to do viruses, but it took a long time. X-ray crystallography, depending on getting crystals of the virus, right? And now we can do cryo-electron microscopy, which is much faster. Uh, you could solve, the spike of SARS-CoV-2 was solved in two months by, by Jason McClelland here in uh, Austin, actually, at the beginning of the, the pandemic. But you're limited, you can't do huge, proteins, you can only do moderately sized ones. So, or actually you can do viruses, but you can't do small proteins. So that speeded it up, but it's still too fast to solve. You get a new protein, you want to solve its structure. So if we could predict it, and I know from talking to structural biologists, this has been their holy grail from day one. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to take a sequence of a protein, put it in a computer and have the the structure put out without having to do all the experiment. So that's why this is very exciting that yeah. you can predict it. I mean, it's not finished, obviously, and there's more to do. But I think there will be a day where you could take any amino acid sequence and predict what it's going to look like. See, but yeah. like, aren't structural biologists going to get greedy? So once you have that, don't you want to go more complicated then? Don't you want to go, because that's, that's just the first step, right? Sure, to go from sure. amino acids to the structure. Yeah. Then there's like multiple protein interactions. Like, how do you get to the virus? Well, so that's what the ultimate goal of getting a structure is, that then you can do experiments and figure out what the structure means, right? So many, in the old days, structural biology was a career in itself. You worked with people who had a system and you solved proteins for them, and then you moved on to another one. You didn't really do any experiments. The other people got to do all the interesting experiments. Right. Now, young structural biologists are multifaceted. They solve the structure and then they say, well, what happens if we change this amino acid? Oh, look, it, it blocks binding to the receptor. This must be the receptor binding interface. So that's the exciting stuff, absolutely, is doing the experiment. Well, I wonder if you can do some kinds of like um, simulations of like, you know, different proteins or multi-protein systems going to war against each other. <laughs> like to, to try to figure out, um, you know, Reinforcement learning is used in alpha zero 
for example, to learn chess and go, mm -hmm. and that's using the self-play mechanism where the thing plays against itself sure. and learns better and better. Yeah. Whether yeah. you can, I wonder if you can simulate almost evolution in that way for for primitive biological systems, sure. have them in simulation fight each other and then see what comes out, like a super dangerous virus comes out or a super like a Chuck Norris type of thing that defends against the super dangerous virus and it's all in simulation. Absolutely. So an example would be, we have all these variants of SARS-CoV-2 arising, right? Yeah. Which which look to be selected by uh, immune responses. But we now we know what amino acids are changing in the spike and how they block antibody bonding. You could simulate that. Mm -hmm. You could say, the, what what is the antibody looking at? You these are where antibodies bind on proteins are called epitopes, right? Mm -hmm. You could map them all and change them in a simulation one by one, and and go back and forth between the antibody and, and the virus. So all these evolution is is what we call an arms race, right? The virus changes, and then it evades the host, and then the host can change. The host takes longer to change, though. Unfortunately, it takes geological time, but it can, and then the virus can change and it can go back and forth. And we can see evidence of this in in genome sequences of both viruses and their hosts. And so you can take a protein in a host that is a receptor for multiple viruses, and you can see all the impacts of virus pressure on it. And you could simulate that for sure. And that's just one thing that you could do. You could simulate changes in, say, a, an enzyme that makes it resistant to a drug and predict all the drug resistance. But... But the problem is, people like me, the experimental virologists, don't know how to do any of that. So we need to collaborate with people, I guess. Oh, with other humans. <laughs> we do that. We do that. Okay. But with people from a field that we're not used to, like I suppose people who, would it be AI, I suppose? Yeah, machine learning people. Machine learning people. And you would say, look, this is the biological problem. Is there a way we can use your tools to attack it? The problem is those people... <laughs> are antisocial introverts that uh, <laughs> that <laughs> have a place like this and try to hide from other people in the world. Very yeah. difficult to find in the wild. Um, okay, <laughs> so outside of doing amazing, brilliant lectures online, you host and produce five, I would say, related podcasts, including my favorite This Week in Virology, also This Week in Parasitism, this week in microbiology and so on. So you're a good person to ask, what are the categories of small things, small biological things in this world that can kill you, kill us humans? Let's, let's look, you said like most <laughs> viruses are friendly or at least not unfriendly, right. but let's look at the unfriendly ones in viruses and bacteria and those kinds of things. When you look at the full spectrum of things that can kill you, can you kind of paint a brief picture? Yeah, I think the the big picture is that the things that can kill you are a minority of everything that's out there. And we're talking about molecules. So we have in us proteins that can kill us. Yeah. Prions that are just, it's a protein in us. And if it misfolds, it makes all of its other copies misfold. And then you, you die of a neurological disease. Yeah. That's pretty rare. Um, so there are proteins, there are viruses. And as I said, only certain ones can kill us. But even though if we get those from animals, it's not straightforward. If you look at SARS-CoV-2, right, this is probably a once in a hundred year pandemic, I would say, equivalent to 1918 
mm. in its devastation. And in between, there have been smaller pandemics of other other viruses, but it doesn't happen all that often. So we have a lot of viruses. We have a lot of bacteria of various sorts that can cause infections in us. And there's this, it, it's a limited number, right? You're streptococci and staphylococci and clostridia. We could go on and on. But we know how to handle those as long as we have antimicrobials. It's just that we abuse them and we get resistance. So mm -hmm. that can be a problem. Then we have fungi, uh, not mushrooms, but much smaller fungi that m multiply submicroscopic or just at the microscopic level. They can, you know, in dry climates of the U.S., you can inhale their spores and they can grow in your lung if you're immunosuppressed and so forth. So those are uh, the, the tiny guys. And then we have parasites, which we, we do this week in parasitism, where single cells, even worms of various sorts, can invade you and cause all sorts of problems. Uh, how, um, I was like kind of terrified to listen to that podcast. What, uh, what's it like? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> what? <laughs> what you learn is yeah. that you can, you travel somewhere and you can get infected and bring it back home. Yes. Uh, here in the U.S., we do have certain kinds of parasites, but because of our lifestyle, we more or less have avoided them. For example, there is a parasite called Toxoplasma, mm -hmm. which has is infected most of the world, actually, mm -hmm. because a lot of people like to eat raw meat, and you would get it from, from raw meat. And we're not as fond of that here in the U.S. Uh, we like to cook our meat, but that could be a consequence of eating raw meat. Is that what leads to, what is it called, toxoplasmosis? Yeah, so toxoplasmosis, um, it's mainly a big issue is if you're pregnant and you get toxo, then your fetus is going to be very badly malformed. It's going to have brain defects and so forth. Um, and animals can get it as well. So there are a lot of parasites of that nature, which you often acquire by food, mm -hmm. eating food of different sorts. And it usually happens elsewhere. We just, on, on This Week in Parasitism, we do a, a case. So Daniel Griffin is our resident physician. He's a doctor, a real doctor, right? And he every month he comes up with a case. Okay, this is a person I saw. And last month, this young lady had traveled somewhere and she ate raw fish. It was somewhere Southeast Asia or something. And she ended up with uh, with with red bumps all over her skin. And it turned out it was a parasite from the fish that moved around in her. And, and very easy to cure. We have, if the right doctors and the right drugs, you can cure all these. Uh, what about diagnose? Like connect the red spots to the fact that it's a parasite? It's very easy to, if you have the right diagnostics. Now, Daniel often goes to parts of the world where they don't have diagnostics and he has to use other mechanisms. He may have to take a bit and look at it under a microscope. And then he may not be able to get the drug depending on where he is. But if these, but often he sees patients who come back to the US and they get diarrhea or they have a fever. And he said, where have you been? And he can put two and two together. And so we let our listeners do that and they all send in guesses and it's wonderful to hear them go through this. So there are a lot of parasites solve the puzzle and solve the that case can study. get you. You have to be careful about eating when you go overseas. And water too? water as well. And, you know, in parts of Africa, there are parasites in the lakes. And if you go swimming, they can invade you. And in fact, they can go into your hair follicles and burrow in and get into your bloodstream. That's exciting. So um, Daniel is interesting because he's very adventurous and he doesn't, he's not afraid of any of this. Uh, so there's a famous lake in Africa, Lake Malawi, where, which harbors a lot of these parasites. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, I just make sure I towel off vigorously when I get out. 
<laughs> and get, get rid of them. And that was the name of an, an episode. But you know, food Towel is off uh, vigorously. You know, sushi. You can uh, you can get worms from sushi. Yeah. And the solution is to freeze it. And many sushi restaurants now have liquid nitrogen. They they snap freeze their sushi, and that kills all the parasites. And a study was actually done in Japan showing that freezing does not alter the taste of sushi because it's oh, wow. something you see a big industry wow, there. Wow, <laughs> that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, um, I, I was thinking about, you know, I'm so boring and bland that especially when I'm now in Texas here and I've been eating quite a bit of barbecue, I realized I really haven't explored the culinary world. And I've been curious to travel and taste different foods. Is, is there something you can say by way of advice uh, you know, channeling Daniel, I guess, if you were to travel in the world, if eating is the thing that gets you the parasites, mm. what's good advice for eating in uh, strange parts of the world? Mongolia, India, China. Is there something you could say by I way think, of advice? I think Daniel would say, make sure your food is cooked, right? Cooked, but that's so boring. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. And he would agree with you uh, because, you know, vet, many vegetables are are delicious salads even are delicious not cooked but they can have parasites in them meats fish people like to have uh uncooked fish so if you want to be really safe and boring just make sure everything is cooked now we have a case this week on twip mm -hmm. of a young man who went i forgot where he went but he stayed in a hotel i think he oh oaxaca mexico mm -hmm. stayed in a hotel and he said that he came back with diarrhea and fever and he said, I don't know where I stayed in the hotel. I just ate hotel food, lots of vegetables and fruits, and probably they weren't washed with clean water. You know, he got something from that. The bottom line is most of these infections with parasites can be diagnosed and you can be treated and you'll be fine. So if you really want to experience the cuisine, I don't think you should worry about it. That's what Daniel would say. Let's return to the basics. We're gonna jump around all over the place. What are the basic principles of virology? Maybe a good place to start is what is a virus? That's great. I mean, I talk in my first lecture for 20 minutes before I get to that. <laughs> but, And I wonder if I should put it up front, but it's kind of a boring definition. So if you do that first, people will turn off. So first you tell them about all the millions and billions of viruses around. So a virus, we have a very specific definition because it's different from everything else on the planet. Um, because it's, first of all, it's a parasite. It takes, a parasite means you take something from someone else. You know, we have human parasites who take money from others, right? But in biological terms, uh, a parasite takes something from the host that the host would otherwise use energy or some building block or something like There's that. There's never really a symbiotic relationship between a virus and a host. <laughs> Well, there, there can be. So but, that's the dichotomy, I think, is that we define them as parasites. Yet, I just told you 20 minutes ago that many viruses are probably beneficial. So I think what it means is we at some point we're going to have to change our definition, right? Because uh, after all, definitions we make are just constructs that make it easier for us to study, that not necessarily represent what's right. Yeah, right? Like, uh, like Pluto 
was a planet at first, and now it's not a planet anymore, and a lot of people are very upset. But it's only according to us. There may be another race living somewhere else who thinks it's a planet, right? Well, maybe that's why viruses are attacking humans. They're very angry. They weren't uh, calling them parasites. So right now, our definition includes parasite because a virus cannot do anything without a cell. If, if, I, if this mug were full of viruses, it would not do anything for years. It would eventually probably lose its infectivity, but it's not gonna reproduce here. It needs cells. And you know, to the first people who discovered viruses, that was astounding that they didn't just reproduce, divide on their own mm -hmm. like bacteria. So a virus needs to get inside of a cell, inside the cell. It can't just hang around on the surface. It needs to get in in order to make more of itself. And so we call it an obligate intracellular parasite because it needs to get in a cell and then it takes things from the cell in the form of all kinds of molecules and processes and energy and so forth to make new viruses. Uh, obligate means it's obligated to be inside the cell. Absolutely, okay. it will not reproduce outside of the cell. So this mug of viruses is can in no way be living in my opinion However, once it gets inside of a cell, now the cell is a virus-infected cell. It's alive. Mm -hmm. So a virus, in my view, has two phases, right? It's this non-living particulate phase that everyone is used to. Uh, I'll send you, you need a virus for your table. I'll send you a nice mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. I think it would look good which, here. Which, yes, definitely. You know, to go with all this other stuff. Yeah, well, these are all mechanical. There's no biology here. So you wouldn't want a virus here? No, I'd want a virus, of course. No, I'll send you one and then you can, you can look at it. Because now that we have the three-dimensional structures solved by structural biologists, we take the coordinates and we put it in a 3D printer and you can make amazing models, right? Mm. And, of, and, and, of any virus. And so there's a huge variety of viruses? Huge, of, that we know of, yeah. which is only a fraction of what's out there. What's the category? So there's RNA, there's DNA viruses. What, what are those? What's so DNA and RNA? Two, two, two broad categorizations. RNA and D, these are genetic material. Mm -hmm. Can be two different chemicals. So RNA, everything else on the planet besides viruses is all DNA-based. You and I are DNA-based. Everything on the planet today is DNA-based, except some viruses are RNA-based. And that's because, as I mentioned earlier, the first life that arose on the planet was RNA-based. Yeah, so these are like old school viruses. These are old school. These are what we call relics, yeah. yeah. <laughs> relics, and this has got a name. It's called the RNA world, which I think is great. Is it big still, or are, they, are the relics dying out? Oh, no, the relics, in my opinion, are the most successful viruses, the RNA viruses. And SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. We can mm -hmm. talk about why they're so successful. But you have, broadly speaking, viruses with RNA, genetic information, which are relics. Of course, they're contemporary. They have adapted to the modern world <laughs> and the modern organisms living in it. And then we have DNA-based viruses, which are extremely conservative and slow. They're very successful. You know, everyone has a herpes virus infection, but they, are, they don't get the news like the RNA viruses do, the HIVs and the influenza viruses and the uh, SARS coronaviruses. They get all the press and they're RNA-based because RNA lets you change more so than DNA. So they, they evolve much faster, the RNA viruses. Much faster. And in fact, when I, I have an electron evolution, I don't know if you've listened to that one, you should, it's really, I think it's really interesting. RNA viruses exist at their error threshold, which means they can't make any more mutations when they reproduce, otherwise they're dead. 
They would wow. go extinct. They're, they're evolving at their error threshold. DNA viruses are hundreds of times lower than their error thresholds. Wow. And we know this. We can do an experiment to find that out. Now, why that is is a good question, uh, but uh, that's the, that's the reason why RNA viruses are far more successful. They yeah. infect many more hosts, and they're very, I would say, slippery. They can change hosts really quickly because in any animal harboring an RNA virus, like let's say a bat in some cave somewhere, it's not just one genome; it's, it's millions of different genomes of all all kinds, all within the framework of, say, coronavirus, but they're all different. And one genome in there might just be right for infecting a person if it ever encountered that person. I mean, that's the thing that... Or there could be a large number. This is a tiny fraction, but a large number of uh, of them. And they're all operating at the, at the threshold of uh, that's right. error. That's right. That's fascinating. It's like little... like uh, It's like startups, little entrepreneurs, like a startup it, world. Yes, and many of them fail. Yeah, many, many of the that. changes and failed. then there's the DNA viruses that are like the IBM and the exactly, Google, exactly the big corporations. It's very good. That I become like that. conservative with the bureaucracies and all that kind of stuff. So they they, have a lot of baggage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's expensive for them to reproduce. Yeah, <laughs> and they don't move quickly. Yes, the RNA viruses are the fast moving members. So that's what a virus is. We call them uh, obligated intracellular parasites. And then I told you there's DNA and RNA. But then let's go further. The the nucleic acid is not naked. Because naked nucleic acid in the world isn't good. I mean, it it existed in the in the precellular world, but there probably weren't a lot of threats to it then. Naked nucleic acid doesn't last long in the environment, so they're they're covered. The nucleic acid is, is covered. It can be covered with a protein shell, a pure protein shell, mm-hmm. or it can have a membrane around it, which would be uh, lipids from the host cell. So uh, lipids, so it's, it's a fatty membrane. Fatty membrane. Yeah, so our cells are coated with fatty membranes, right? Our cells, the outer plasma yeah, membrane, right? That's the same. But viruses can be too. So they're kind of like cells, but without the ability to do the mitochondria stuff. Some some are. Some are, They don't have nuclei. They don't have mitochondria. Yeah. But they do have a nucleic acid. They, they have a membrane. And then, of course, there are spikes in the membrane mm-hmm. that allow them to attach to cells. And so that completes our, our two different kinds. So of they have, virus. they all have like attachment mechanisms, like yeah. ways to, like keys into the, into they, the cells. They all have to get into cells. There are, there are a couple of exceptions though. Uh, there are viruses of fungi uh, and uh, plants. So let's do the fungi. F- fungi would be like yeast. Uh, the virus, the yeast cell wall is pretty hard to get through. So. Viruses typically don't attach to a yeast and get inside. Rather, they, they just live in the yeast forever. Yeah. And they multiply as mostly nucleic acids. And as the yeast divide, they go into the daughter cells. And that's mm-hmm. how they exist. Plant viruses, also the plant cell wall, would be very hard to get across with a by binding a protein. So plant viruses get into plants either by pests that inject them in they're sucking sap out and they inject virus at the same time. Or farmers, they have contaminated farm equipment and they roll over the plants and introduces viruses. So those fungi and plant viruses, they don't have this specific receptor binding to get them into the cell. But everything else, yeah, the virus binds to something on the surface, very specific. It's taken into the cell because that's what cells do. When things bind their exterior, mm-hmm. they take it in because in most cases it's good. It's something they need. 
And so the virus slips in. I guess you'd call that a Trojan horse, right? Trojan horse. It's so hard to not anthropomorphize this whole thing. It is hard. So obviously uh, they don't know any of this. It's not an actual Trojan horse. So they, they're not getting actually tricked in the way humans trick each other. No, it's all passive. And it's just through so many years of evolution, it's you select something that works and it continues. And what survives then goes on with a, perhaps a slightly passive. different approach. I love this idea of passive. Of course, according to Sam Harris, uh, so from a sufficiently intelligent alien civilization observing humans, our behavior might seem passive too, because they understand <laughs> fully exactly what we're doing. And then there's no free will and we're all just operating in the same way. It could be. A cell yeah. does, but just a much higher level of complexity. Yeah. <laughs> so I love the distinction between active and passive. I mean, the point is, I think anthropomorphizing to a certain extent is fine because it helps people understand. But when you start to say, I think that the virus is doing that because then you're putting a human lens on it and you may be wrong. Yeah. Because you don't know why things happen for a virus. Um, so right now we have variants emerging and people say, well, I think it's because the antibodies are selecting for variants. That's a good idea, but it may not be the only Thing that's going right, on. you start imagining them coming to the table negotiating. <laughs> yeah, it, you get into trouble with that. That's why. That's why I tell my students: be careful about the anthropomorphizing, because you're going to apply your values to a virus, and you have different value. You're a human, and you have what you think is the reason for this outcome may not be right. That's all. Just be open-minded. Yeah. About it. In both directions. I actually one of the things I push back on is in in the space of robotics. People, most people in robotics try to n not anthropomorphize. Mm -hmm. For example, they don't give a gender or a name to robots. They really try to see it as a machine. And to me, that makes sense in one, in, in one way, but it totally doesn't make sense in another. If that robot is to interact, operate in the human world and interact with humans, we have to, we have to anthropomorphize it in order to understand as an engineering problem, mm. how should it operate in a human world. Now the difference with viruses, the scale of operation, it doesn't make sense to treat them as human-like because the scale of operation is much smaller. But with robots, you're in the same sure. time scale, the same spatial scale. And of course, in the movies, they always give them names and personalities. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, that's the movie. But that's my argument is we should do the same when you're trying to solve the engineering problem of mm. robotics too. It's not just for the movies. Well, let me ask you this mm. because you said controversially, not really, that uh, <laughs> viruses are not living. Um, uh, defend yourself. <laughs> so, are viruses alive or not? So I've seen many people say, oh, they have to be. They, they have nucleic acids, they evolve, they mutate. That's all true, but they don't do it on their own. The particles in my mug are just not doing any of that unless they get into a cell. Mm. So a virus-infected cell is alive. I totally agree with that because, in fact, when a virus... It's in a cell, it converts it into a virus-making factory, if you will. It's no longer a cell. It's a, some people call it a virocell. I don't really like that, but it's fine. So that's what I'm talking about. The particle is not alive. You can have your virus-infected cell as, as alive, but the particle, it just would not do anything forever without getting inside of a cell. But once it's in a cell, it's, it, it, it is alive then, but it's no longer a particle. It's taken apart and Nucleic acid is moving around the cell, it's making proteins, 
eventually it makes new particles. And then those particles released from the cell, they're not living anymore. So it's kind of, I think it's kind of like a spore, a spore of a, uh, or a seed. Although it's, the seed just doesn't work because the seeds, the cells in the seed have the ability to make their own energy and so forth. But a bacterial spore, and it's the same thing, doesn't do anything unless you add water and nutrients and then it starts to divide, but it doesn't need to get into a cell. It's very different from a virus. So that's why the particle. And when people think of virus, they're always thinking of the particle. And that's why I say it can't be alive because the particle can't do anything on its own. But if you think of a virus as an organism with a particle phase in a, in a part in a cell, then it makes sense to be alive. And by the way, when you say particle, you're referring to that structure that you've been mentioning, some right. kind of membrane and not that that's right. has been called what is it, a viron particle or something. Virion. Like, so virion. it's what you should have here. I'll send you one, and then you can refer to what's it the sexiest one to have. Like what what in terms of particles to have on a table <laughs> well unfortunately the ones that you can 3d print they're all, oh they're not going to be super they're, they're only they're the ones that we know the structures of right so someone sent me last year a 3d model of SARS-CoV-2 and it's beautiful it's actually cracked open so you can see the RNA oh, wow. and the spikes are sticking out and they even put some antibodies sticking onto the spikes and that's super I mean cool. when I show this on a live stream people love this they go oh my god that's beautiful yeah. it is it's absolutely gorgeous I have that I have my virus that I worked on most of my career polio virus I have a 3d model of that which I actually just had made it's gorgeous and you can have it made in any color you want right what would you say is the most fascinating terrifying surprising beautiful virus to you so of all the viruses you looked at, sometimes when you just sit late at night with a glass of wine, looking over the sunset, which virus do you think about? So uh, fulfilling all of those adjectives is hard, right? Fascinating, exciting, terrifying. Well, the terrifying is an optional one, I think, because may maybe that puts a lot of pressure. I see terrifying to me, it, it, I'm not terrified because I think we can handle as most viruses, as you see with this brand new one that emerged a year ago, we, we can handle it. From a virology perspective. Yeah, yes. I mean, the, the human perspective is a different story, right? That's always an issue. But um, so I, I think there, there are a couple of different categories of virus. So we could do the, the terrifying. And I think rabies is a terrifying virus because unless you're vaccinated, 100% certainty you're going to die. <laughs> so you get bitten by a rabid raccoon or bat or dog, whatever. And, you know, and there's still 70,000 deaths a year of rabies throughout the world because there are a lot of feral dogs running around that are infected. Unless you're vaccinated, you're going to die. There's nothing we can do. But we do have a vaccine which we can actually give you even after you've been bitten, which is the only vaccine that works that way. It's a therapeutic, right? It will treat your illness because the disease takes so long to develop. You know, eventually you get all kinds of neurological issues and paralysis and so forth, but it takes time and you can be vaccinated and it will prevent that in the meanwhile. So people always say, what's the most lethal virus? Is it Ebola? I said, no, it's actually rabies. It, unless you're vaccinated, it will kill you. But it's maybe it's, a, <laughs> it's good to linger because we'll talk about vaccines a few times today. Sure. It's good to linger on cases where vaccines have clearly, uh, undoubtedly helped human civilization. Mm -hmm. 
And it seems like uh, rabies is a good example. Oh, rabies is great because everyone knows what happens when somebody gets rabies, right? You have fear of water, f hydrophobia. Uh, your, your body becomes spastic and stiff and jerks around and you lose consciousness. You can't, you know, so no more. It's not uh, a fun ride to death. It's horrible. It's a horrible way to die. So I think most people know that. It's been popularized enough in, in media, right? So then nobody would probably object to getting, uh, oh, I, I was just bit by this raccoon and it ran off. Okay, well, we should assume it's rabid. We should immunize you. And most people are okay with that yeah, because they know the consequences. And it's also pretty rare, right? It's not like something that you're trying to get into the arms of, you know, three, 250, 300 million Americans. That's hard. But yeah. the, 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 the few thousand every year, it's, it's easy. So the transmissibility is difficult, right? It has to, oh, it's not, it's not airborne. So It's not airborne. It's just, you has to be, you have to be bitten. Although some, some people claim you could walk into a cave and the bats, you know, breathing out rabies virus could infect you. But I don't really think that's well, that's well substantiated. Yeah. I think it's a bite. How would you do a study on that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very hard to do. You'd have to collect the vapors in the cave and show that they're infectious, which, and by the way, someone emailed me the other day, you'll like this. They say, why can't we just immunize all the bats in the world? <laughs> against these viruses. And I said, well, how would you do that? There are caves everywhere, right? Yeah. He said, well, maybe you could just go and aerosolize them. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty dangerous. And then and then all the bats should have vaccine passports to make sure that they're yeah, all- Yeah, I said, you have to get their consent before you do it. But you, we do immunize wildlife against rabies. We have rabies vaccines for wild animals. So there are a whole bunch of them that get rabies. And we put it, uh, we put it in bait and drop it from helicopters in the woods, and it drops down wow. the incidence of uh, rabies in people. Wow! You know, people hiking get bitten and so forth. It drops the incidence, so we can do that. I didn't know that. I was wondering how much medical care are we doing for animals in the wild because I've recently become more and more aware that animals are living in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. Right? Like you don't know. You think like natural, it's great. Um, you know. Like, uh, like when animals are living on a farm, it's terrible. But then you, you also have to compare to like what life is like in the or like the zoo. You have to compare what life is sure. like in in the wild. Well, and, uh, life and in the wild is very tough. I think. I mean, most animals have to. Well, the carnivores anyway. They have to catch their food every day. Yeah. Right. And then there's vi the viruses there. They have viruses as well. Oh, so the rabies immunization is the only one I'm aware of for wild animals. Um, we do immunize lots of other animals. Uh, we immunize chickens and pigs and cows, even fish, farmed fish. We, uh, we pick each fish up and give it an injection, you know, when it's a small fish. Um, but that's mostly so that the farmers get a good yield. We don't really care about the animals, right? We want a good yield for market. And then there's some examples where we immunize animals to prevent spillovers into people. Mm. So there's a disease called Hendra in Australia, which um, was discovered in the 90s. And it turns out that there are bats, fruit bats, that have this virus. And the bats are fine, but sometimes they fly into horse stalls and the horses get infected. These are, in Australia, it was initially racehorses, which are very expensive, right? 
the horses got infected and they died, and the humans who would take care of them would die also. So now they immunize the horses to prevent the, well, to save the horses. Probably that's the motivation because these horses are hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And then the people don't get sick because the horses don't get sick. You don't want to immunize all the people because it's too rare. But mm -hmm. that approach is called one world health approach, which means everything's connected on the planet. And we have to think of everything in the grander scheme, not just us. Yeah, so you can immunize some things along the trajectory that a virus would take. Exactly. So, so not it, some things, some living beings. Yeah. Um, in the Arabian Peninsula, they have a MERS coronavirus issue. Every month there are a couple of cases where a camel will infect a human, and the human can get very sick. It's respiratory disease, very, very much like COVID. And so camels are very common there. They're used, they're raced, they're used as pets, they're eaten. So there's a lot of human camel contact, but the number of cases are rare to, to a month. So you don't want to immunize all the humans. So the idea would be to immunize the camels. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I like it. So, okay, so you put rabies, but <laughs> Ebola uh, also is, is a uh, famously deadly one. Right. What is it? It kills like, I don't know, 50, 60% of its- Could be 50 to 90, but that's in Africa where the healthcare isn't great. What you saw when they, when it, cases of Ebola came to the U.S., we're, we could take care of it. We knew how to take care of it. We had fancy hospitals and so forth, and now we have a vaccine. So we can, and the vaccine is really good, but there are many governments in Africa who that are suspicious of, of us, and they don't want to use our vaccine. So they. So there's a vaccine for Ebola. There is, yeah. And uh, the effectiveness and safety of it, how much is understood? So this is difficult because there's not a lot of Ebola, yeah. right? It's not a continuous ongoing thing. There are sporadic outbreaks here and there. Of a few thousand people. At most, at most, usually a few hundred. And the biggest ever, in fact, this is why we didn't for years have an Ebola vaccine. The US military, together with Canada, developed an Ebola vaccine for service people, right? They wanted to say, well, we're sending people into these Ebola areas, we want a vaccine for them. So they had developed it through all the preclinical, which means before it goes into people. And that stopped because there was no money to do a phase one and a phase two and a phase three. In fact, for a phase two and three, you need to have infections going on because you're looking at how well the vaccine prevents infections, right? So then there was a West African outbreak in 2015, 2013, 2015, the most cases ever, 25,000. So they got to test the vaccine. Um, but they only put it in a few thousand people. It's not like it's been in hundreds of thousands of people like the COVID vaccines has been. So it's it looks like it's it has high efficacy, um, but we'd like to have more data. Side effects maybe are not so great. There are a couple of different available vaccines. Some have been tested more than others. Uh, I would say this would probably not be widely accepted in the U.S. <laughs> but then neither would be <laughs> something over 50% uh, deadliness of a virus. No, no, I think if you were, in fact, many physicians work in countries that have Ebola, so they get vaccinated because they understand the choice. Yeah, right. right. It's always about the choice. Um, so, so then one more thing to answer the yeah. interesting, what, what are some of the viruses you really are fascinated by? There are a number of viruses that have clearly been shown to alter host behavior, and that's how they spread. Mm -hmm. I think those are fascinating. For example, there are some viruses of plants 
that are spread by aphids. And the aphid bites the plant, the virus reproduces in the plant, then it somehow engineers the plant to give off volatile organics to attract more aphids, mm-hmm. which will spread the virus. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that's altering the behavior. <laughs> altering because somehow the virus infecting the plant cells gives off these organics so and attracts aphids. And furthermore, somehow the when the aphid bites, it tastes horrible. So they immediately leave with the virus they've just picked up and go to another plant to spread it. So they're attracted and then repulsed at the same time. And obviously you don't want to anthropomorphize this, like a strategy they're taking on. Somehow this worked out. It worked out this way. It just evolved. And you know, evolution is sometimes hard to trace, right? Mm-hmm. Like Dame Darwin famously said, he could never figure out how an eye evolved from a single cell, right? But yeah. it did. The more complicated, complex the the holistic organism is that the virus invades, the, the less able it is to control that organism, right? So I wonder if there's viruses that can control human behavior, um, you know, to induce more spread of the virus. Well, I don't but see why not. There's not I enough mean, humans, I suppose, to like evolve through. Well, we can't do the experiment to test it, right? We have to observe, and that's always hard when you're observing because there's so many things that can confound what you're looking yeah, at. Yeah, change human behavior, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that impinge on our behavior, but um, yeah, it's, I think it's possible. Um, I think it's highly possible. If it does it in a plant, why not change some other organism's behavior? I think it's fine. Anyway, those fascinate me. There are lots of examples of those that are fascinating and how they work, people are trying to figure out. But there's not a lot of money to work on you know, insect and plant viruses unless you're going to the USDA. So they don't get a lot of... Uh, work moving forward. Well, is there, if you understand some of those viruses, is that transferable to human viruses, that understanding? I think some of it could be, sure. I think the general principles, for example, how the how does the virus cause volatile organics to be made? It must be turning on some genes, and you could learn principles from that, how, how the virus might do that. Sure. I think everything is broadly applicable. So to say it's not useful to study viruses of insects and plants is just wrong because in science we probably know this maybe in your field it's the same if you're curious you're going to run into interesting things oh, yeah. that you never f- planned on right that's why people like you can criticize uh, why do we want to go on mars why do we want to colonize mars well it's like why do you want to go to the moon the the reality is when you do really difficult things yeah, engineering yeah. things like all these inventions along the sure. way are created. It's kind of fascinating how basically just do, pick a pick a th- thing that everyone can agree is kind of cool and is really hard and do that, and then you'll have like thousands of inventions that have nothing to do with the thing. That's right. And I think you should let curious scientists just follow what they're interested in yeah. to a certain extent. You can't. You know, in science, we say we have translational research where we say, okay, here's some money, go cure cancer or diabetes or heart disease, whatever, right? And that's fine. But that often doesn't work out very well. What works better is to say, here, you're, you have a good lab, you have a good track record, here's some money, do yeah. something. And that's where PCR, CRISPR, recombinant DNA, all that stuff which has made the field explode, that's all it came from. Not from people saying, I want to cure genetic diseases by gene editing, but by saying, what are these repeated things in this bacterium doing? And yep. 
Can I ask you a big philosophical question? So there's these deadly viruses that are not very transmissible. Mm-hmm. Ebola, rabies. And then there's these less deadly viruses that are very transmissible. Um, like uh, like COVID is, I guess, kind of borderline. But uh, why isn't there super transmissible, super deadly viruses? I think if you compare SARS-1 and 2, you get somewhat of an answer, right? SARS-1 was more deadly. In fact, over half of the time when people were infected, they ended up in the hospital because they were that sick. And then the peak of virus shedding from them happened long after they went in the hospital. So it's easy to contain uh, the infection when you're in a hospital, right? There was not much pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic shedding with SARS-1. And shedding means you you're infe- you become infectious. So in, in a respiratory virus, you you inhale the droplets with the virus and they, they reproduce in your upper respiratory tract, what we call the nasopharynx, right? Mm-hmm. The nose and going back to that little cavity just above your mouth. So the virus reproduces really well. And then as you talk and sneeze and cough, you expel droplets and then those are inhaled by other people and then they reproduce. And for SARS-2, we now know there's a lot of reproduction just before you feel anything, if at all. So there's a lot of shedding and transmission before you get symptomatic. And so, many people don't ever get symptomatic, right? So they right. spread really easily. So that explains why some viruses can transmit a lot better than others. And if one happens to knock you out, then you're never going to transmit because you're in the hospital like SARS-1. But why can't you have both? Why can't you just wait a while before it knocks you out, but when it knocks you out, it really kills you? That's, that is a philosophical question, right? Because we could talk about why we haven't observed it. I mean, one, one issue is that if, you, uh, if you're killed too quickly by a highly lethal virus, you're not going to transmit it very well, right? So Ebola can kill you quite rapidly, and most of the transmission occurs when people are being cared for at home or in hospitals. The doctors and nurses get virus, but people walking around, you're not walking around when you have Ebola, you're too sick. You know, you have black, bloody diarrhea, you're vomiting, you're you're bleeding from your skin and mucous membranes, you're not walking around, you're not going to parties. So I think that's part of it, that if if the infection is too lethal, you're simply not a good transmitter. And I think transmission is probably one of the most powerful selection forces for viruses because a virus always has to have find a new host. If it doesn't, it's a startup that fails, right? If it doesn't find a new host, it's gone. Yeah. And so anything that makes the virus transmit better is going to help it. And if killing you, being less lethal is part of that, that works too. So there's a strong selection pressure against being lethal. I think there's a strong selection uh, pressure against being lethal and being more transmissible. Those two seem to work in opposite ways. And now we don't have a lot of data to support this. This is kind of a a thought experiment, but there is one experiment done in Australia many years ago. I don't know if you know this, but in the 1800s, the hunters in Australia imported a rabbit from Europe so they could hunt it because the native rabbit in Australia was too fast for them. They couldn't shoot them. Mm-hmm. So they brought in this European rabbit and they they reproduced out of control. Within a couple of years, they were everywhere 
millions of rabbits and all the watering holes, and now they had a problem. So they decided to use a virus to get rid of these excess rabbits. And they used a, a virus, a pox virus called myxoma virus, which is a natural virus of a different kind of rabbit. But for these European rabbits, it was quite lethal. And it's spread by mosquitoes. So they said, okay, let's, let's uh, release this virus. And the first year, 99.2% of the rabbits were killed. But that 0.8% that were left had some form of resistance. They were variants. You know, every organism, not just viruses, makes mutants. And uh, there were some variants of the rabbits that could survive infection. And then in subsequent years, the virus became less lethal. And then the mosquitoes had a better shot of transmitting it from one rabbit to another if the rabbit lived longer. That's mm -hmm. the selection, probably. And so in the end, the, the rabbits lived on. The, the virus was there. It evolved to be more transmissible and less... Uh, lethal. So that's the, only, amazing. that's the life only on data. Earth is amazing. It is. It is. If you take the time to look at it and see what's happened, it is amazing. It's also humbling that it just makes you realize humans are just a small part of the picture. Of course. And we're wrecking it, aren't we? <laughs> well, I mean, that's that. We're not really, I mean, viruses are wrecking it some way. It's part of this. We're not really wrecking anything. It's all part of it. <laughs> but you know, when the ways that human exists encourages viruses to infect us, right? When we were hunter-gatherers living in bands of 100 people, very few viruses because it was hard for, for the virus to go from one band to another. And perhaps a hunter would, one of these humans would get an animal and bring a virus into camp and some people would die, but it would never spread mm -hmm. to another. And then when we started to congregate in cities, we figured out agriculture and so forth and how to harvest animals. Then we could get bigger and bigger populations and the viruses went crazy. And they went from animals to us. So measles went from cows to humans when humans learned to domesticate cows and, and uh, started gathering in big cities. Yeah, but now that humans are able to communicate and travel globally, the viruses become more and more dangerous, transmissible. Uh, thereby, if you look at Earth as an organism, thereby pushing humans to be more innovative, create alpha fold two and three and four and five, create better systems, and eventually there's rockets that keep flying from Earth, and eventually uh, the virus is becoming super dangerous and threatening all of human civilization. Will force it to become a multiplanetary species, and this <laughs> organism starts expanding. So I think it's a feature, not a bug. I, I don't know. Um, well, I think that we have our early probably the most of the, well, we're studying viruses since 1900, right? Most of that time was because of diseases they caused. The first viruses discovered, yellow fever, virus, smallpox, uh, polio virus, influenza virus, those were all because people got sick and they said, oh, look, this is a virus that's associated with it. And so we got good at learning how to take care of these infections, making vaccines and so forth over the years. And it's only in the last 20 years that we recognize that there are more viruses out there that are far more interesting, perhaps, but we've learned how to deal with the bad ones, for sure. So we talked about what is a virus. We talked about some of the most dangerous and deadly viruses. Mm -hmm. Can we zoom in and talk about COVID-19 virus? Sure. I don't know what your preferred name is, but- Well, there's two names, right? The virus is SARS-CoV-2, yeah. which is hard, it's long, right? And then COVID-19 is the disease. So you could say the virus of COVID-19, that's fine. The virus don't. of COVID-19. But for the purpose of this conversation, we'll every once in a while just say COVID. It's 
fine, no problem. <laughs> what is this virus from, uh, I don't know how many ways we can talk about it. I think from a basic structural, like the, uh, the virion structure, biological structure perspective, mm -hmm. what is it? What are its variants? Can you describe the basics, the okay. important characteristics of the virus? So viruses are classified by humans just to make it easier to keep track of them, yeah. right? So this is a coronavirus, which is because when they were first discovered, I think the first ones were animal coronaviruses. They looked at them under the electron microscope and it looked like the solar corona. And that's all there is to it. And I have to say that early in the outbreak, the, the place with the highest seropositivity in the US for a while, 68% was a working class neighborhood in New York City called Corona. Mm -hmm. Can you can you beat that, right? That's crazy, yeah. So coronaviruses, they have membranes, right? We talked about membranes. They have spike proteins in the membrane so they can attach to cells. And inside, they have RNA. And they are the viruses with the longest RNA that we know of. No, None other comes close. For some reason, they're able to maintain 30,000. So SARS-CoV-2 RNA is 30,000 bases of RNA. And some of the other coronas are even longer. 40,000. This is a, uh, coronas are a family of viruses yes. that included the what the, the one you mentioned before, version one. <laughs> so SARS-CoV-1, yeah. CoV-1 and I guess other ones as so well. So the first, we first learned of them in animals, a lot of animals, pigs and um, cows and horses have coronaviruses. And then uh, in the 60s, we discovered a couple of human coronaviruses that just cause colds, very mild colds that you wouldn't even think twice about, right? And then suddenly in 20, 2003, there's this outbreak of severe respiratory disease in, in China. And, you know, they it started in November and they didn't tell the world until February. And that was really bad because it was already spreading by the time they told people about it. But this went to many, 29 different countries, only 8,000 people were infected and then it stopped. And that was the first time we saw an epidemic coronavirus. And it, what they did afterwards is they said, okay, it looks like it came from the meat markets. They have live meat markets in Guangzhou in the south of China, where you can go and pick out an animal and the guy will slaughter it for you and give it to you. And then of course there's blood everywhere and that's how they got infected. And they figured out that there's this animal called a palm civet that was the source of virus. The palm civets are shipped in from the countryside and they, the palm civets somehow in the countryside got it from a bat. So they went looking in caves in the countryside and they found in one cave all the viruses that could make up SARS-1. And that was 2000 and well, I would say took about five, eight years after that outbreak. So that was the first hint that bats have coronaviruses that can infect people and cause problems, right? And after that, we should have been ready. So didn't they already start developing vaccines after yes. then? So some people started making vaccines. They tested them in, in mice, um, but they never got into people. And some people started working on antiviral drugs. Nothing ever came of them because, you know, industry, there's no... There's no disease, it's gone. Why should we make vaccines and drugs? And NIH in the US, you submit a grant and they say, ah, it's too risky, there's no none of this virus around. So people were really short-sighted. 
because I always say we could have had antivirals for this. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. No question. In fact, one the one antiviral that's in phase three, it's called molnupiravir. It's the only one that you can take orally. It's a pill. Mm. It looks really good. That was developed five years ago, but never taken into humans. It could have been ready. So we dropped the ball. And then the next decade, 2012, MERS coronavirus comes uh, comes up in the Arabian Peninsula. This comes from camels and infects people, but probably the camels got it from bats originally mm -hmm. some time ago. But that never transmits from person to person, very rarely. Mm -hmm. Every new little outbreak is a new infection from a camel. So that was 2012. And now here we are, 2019, a new outbreak of respiratory disease in China. And this one really goes all over the world where, where SARS-1 could not. And it's a coronavirus. You know, it's different enough from SARS-1 that it has very different properties. But it still has a membrane. It still has a very long RNA in the middle. Right. And then it still has the spike proteins. That's right. What are the things that are, what are the little unique things that make it that much more effective? Well, they make it cause a pandemic of pandemic. millions of people as opposed to SARS-1. Yeah. Well, the genome is 20% different from SARS-1, say. And in those bases, there's some, there are things that uh, make it different from SARS-1. It binds the same receptor, ACE2, on the cell surface. So that's remarkable. Um, it has a lot of the same proteins. They look similar. Like if you look at the structure of the spikes, they look similar, but there's enough amino acid differences to, to make the biology. And what it is, we don't know because uh, how do you figure that out? You need to study animals because you can't infect people. And the, the animal models aren't great. You know, for, for, for so smart. the way you figure that out is you figure out how those differences, what functional, like how the difference in the amino acids lead to functional difference of the virus. That's like right. how it attaches, That's how right. it breaks the cell wall. Exactly. And sure. how the hell do you figure that out? Like, I guess there's models of so you, interaction. You, you need a, first you need an animal of some kind to infect, right? You can use mice, people have used ferrets, guinea pigs, non-human primates, all of the above. Non-human primates are very expensive, so not many people do that. Um, and then you can put the virus in the respiratory tract. But in fact, none of them get sick like people do. You know, Many people with, with COVID get a mild disease, but 20% get a very severe, longer lasting disease and they can die from it, right? No animal does that yet. So we have no insight into what's controlling that. But if you just wanna look at the very first part of infection and the shedding and the transmission, you can do it in any one of several animal models. Ferrets are really good for transmission. They tend, they have nasal structures like humans and they, they you could put them in cages next to each other and they'll transmit the virus really nicely. So you can study that. Ooh. But the other thing that's important that we should mention is how do you manipulate these viruses? So these are RNA viruses. You can't manipulate RNA. We don't know how to do it. But we, DNA, because of the recombinant DNA revolution that occurred in the 70s, we can change DNA any way we want. Mm -hmm. We could change a single base, we can cut out bases, we can put other things in really easily. And if I may give it a personal aspect, when I went to MIT as a postdoc in 1979, 
David Baltimore said, here's what I want you to do. The, the moratorium on recombinant DNA experiments on viruses has just been lifted. I want you to make a DNA copy of polio and see if you put that in a cell, whether it will start an infection. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I made a DNA copy of poliovirus. It's only 7,500 bases. It's much smaller than corona. And I took that DNA and I put it in a piece of DNA from a bacteria called a plasmid. Mm -hmm. And you can grow plasmids in many, many bacteria, make lots of them and purify the DNA really easily. And I took that DNA and I, I sequenced it because we wanted we didn't know the genome sequence of polio at the time. And that took me a year, by the way, because the techniques we had were really archaic. And nowadays you could do it in 15 minutes, right? It's amazing. And I took the DNA, I put it into cells and out came polio. So that's the start. Now, since then, everybody has taken that technique and used it for their virus. You can now do it with SARS-CoV-2. You make a DNA copy of any RNA virus, you can modify it, and you put it back into cells, and you'll get vi your modified virus out. So that's an important part of understanding the properties of the virus is, say, in an animal. By changing the virus, you're changing a DNA copy. You're making the virus then and putting it into the animal. Uh, can you clarify? So even in the RNA virus, you can take and turn it into DNA? Yes. And then we that can. allows you to modify it. Yes. So the, uh, what's, take, that, what's that What's uh, that mapping? What, what, no, no, no. What's the process of going from RNA to DNA? Reverse transcription. That's reverse transcription. Right. Oh, so you actually go through the the process of reverse transcription to do this? Yes. So oh. the, remember, David Baltimore and Howard yes. had discovered this enzyme in the 70s. And they got the Nobel Prize for that. And when I went to David's lab at MIT, he had the enzyme in the freezer. He said, here, take this and make a DNA copy of polio. Yeah, I didn't make the connection that you can use that kind of thing yeah. for an RNA virus. And so that's- And then modify it. See, any That's DNA virus already exists as DNA, so you can modify it. That's yeah. no, but for RNA viruses, it was difficult. And so then from that point on, for influenza, every other RNA virus and coronaviruses, people made DNA copies, and that's what they used to modify and, and ask questions about what things are doing, right? What's right. this gene doing? What so if we take it out? What happens? Can you do the same thing with uh, COVID? Uh, is is of course. take the RNA and then... Of course. And in fact, in January 20... 20, as soon as the genome sequence was released from China, the labs all over were synthesizing this 30,000 base DNA and mm -hmm. getting so what, what can you figure out without infecting anything? Just uh, turning into, with the reverse transcription, turning into DNA, modifying stuff, and then putting it into a cell. What can you figure out from that? Oh, well, you could, well, let's say you you can cut out a gene. You see some genes in the sequence. I don't know what these genes do. Let's Let cut see. them out. And then you could cut them out of the DNA. You put the DNA in cells and maybe you get virus out. And you go, oh, uh, clearly that gene's not needed mm -hmm. for the virus to reproduce, at least in cells, right? Or maybe you take the gene out and the, you never get any virus. So it's lethal. Is there it. a nice systematic ways of doing this? Do people yes. kind of automate it? Absolutely. And we, I mean, the problem with sars the COVID virus is it's 30,000 bases. So There's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. And what makes it more difficult is that you have to, it's been classified as a BSL-3 agent, biosafety level three. And so not everyone has a lab that's capable of doing that. So it limits the number of people who can do experiments. You know, some 
we ha- we're lucky to have a few in New York City, but not every place has them. So you cannot work with the virus just out on the bench like we do with many other viruses. You have to wear a suit and have to have special procedures and containment and so forth. So it makes it difficult to do basic experiments on the virus. But when it's a pandemic, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of incentive to work on it harder. So. Right, and also you don't need to work on the virus. You can take bits of it and work. You could take, say, just the spike, right? And say, can we make a vaccine with just the spike? Because right. that doesn't require BSL-3. So yes. So uh, like building a vaccine requires you to figure out how, or antiviral drugs, how to attack various structural parts of the virus and the functional parts of the virus. Right. You have to decide on a target. Yeah. Like I'm gonna make an antiviral, what am I gonna target in the virus? And there are a few things that make more sense than others. Usually we like to target enzymes. I don't know if you remember any, your biochemistry, but you know, enzymes are catalytic. You don't need a lot of them to do a lot of things. So they're typically in low concentrations in, in a virus infected cell. So it's easier to inhibit them with a drug. And the, the coronas have a couple of enzymes that we can target. So it's you have to figure that out ahead of time and decide what to go after. And then you can look for drugs that inhibit what, what you're interested in. It's not that hard to do. There's just something beautiful about biology, about the mechanisms of biology. And I kind of regret um, falling in love with computer science so much that I um, left that biology textbook on the shelf mm. and left it behind. But uh, hopefully we'll return to it now because I think one of the things you learn even in computer science that studying biology and uh, certainly neurobiology, uh, you you get inspired. Here's a mechanism of incredible complexity that works really well, is very robust, is very effective, efficient. Mm. It inspires you to come up with techniques that you can engineer in the machine. So that's that's the what drives the field forward when people improvise and come up with new technologies that really make a difference. And we have we have a bunch of those now. What's the difference between the coronavirus family and the uh, the other popular family, influenza virus family, <laughs> is, um, I mean, I, if I were, because you mentioned we should have done a lot more in terms of vaccine development, that kind of thing f- yeah. for coronaviruses. But if I were back then, from my understanding, the thing we should all be afraid of is influenza, like some v- strong variants mm-hmm. coming out from that family. That seems like the one that will destroy humans. <laughs> civilization or uh, or hurt us really badly. I don't know if you uh, agree with this sense, but maybe um, maybe you can also just clarify what to use the is the difference between the families. So it's an interesting difference. They both they both have membranes, right? So then they have spike proteins embedded in them for and they're different spikes. In fact, for for influenza there there are two main ones. They're called the HA and the NA. Um, but what's inside is RNA, but it's very different RNA. And here we have to explain that. So viruses with RNA can have three different kinds of RNA. They can have what we call plus RNA. They can have minus RNA, or they could have plus minus, actually two strands uh, hybridized together. The plus RNA simply means that if you put that plus RNA in a cell, 
you know, your cell has ribosomes in it that make the proteins that you need. The ribosomes will immediately latch onto the plus RNA and begin to make proteins. A minus RNA is not the right strand to make proteins. So it has to be copied first. And then the plus minus is both together. So the SARS coronaviruses, all the coronaviruses have plus RNA. So as soon as that RNA gets in the cell, boom, it starts an infectious cycle. Same thing with poliovirus, by the way, which I worked on. Influenza viruses are negative, stranded. So they cannot be translated when they get in the cell. So that that's tough for the virus because the cell actually cannot make plus RNA from minus RNA. It doesn't have the enzyme to do it. So the virus has to carry it in inside the virus particle. And then when the minus RNA is in the cell, the virus enzyme makes plus RNAs and those get translated. So it's a big difference. And then in the influenza viruses, not only is it minus RNA, but it's in pieces. It's in eight pieces. We call that segmented, whereas the corona is in one long piece of RNA. So what is that? Is it they're like floating separately? Yeah, so the genes are on separate pieces. They're all packaged inside that virus particle of influenza virus, but they're in pieces. And why that's important is because if two different influenza viruses infect the same cell, the pieces as they reproduce can mix and out can come a virus with a new assortment of pieces. Mm-hmm. And that allows influenza virus to undergo extremely high frequency evolution. That's why we get pandemics when we have a new flu pandemic is because somewhere in some animal, two viruses have reassorted and made a new virus that we hadn't seen before. Mm. So, so you're, you're, you're talking about kind of biological characteristics, but what, am I incorrect in my intuition that, or from the things I've heard that the influenza vi- family of viruses is more dangerous? Like what, what makes it more dangerous to humans? Well, it depends on the, there are many flavors or vintages of influenza virus. Some are dangerous and some are not, right? It depends on which one. Some, like the 1918 apparently was was very lethal, killed a lot of people. Uh, But more contemporary viruses, we had a pandemic in 2009 of influenza. That wasn't such a lethal virus. We don't know exactly why, but it didn't kill that many people. It, it transmitted pretty well. Was that it, the bird flu one? They're all they're all, all deriving. Birds. That one was called swine influenza. Swine. It seemed right, to swine, have yeah. started in a pig, but it had bird. It had RNAs from bird influenza viruses. These viruses are all reassortants of different viruses from pigs and birds and mm-hmm. humans. Um, but influenza can cause pneumonia and can kill you, as does. SARS-CoV-2, so it depends on the uh, the virus. So eight, mm. there is another influenza virus that's currently circulating. So right now we have the 2009 pandemic virus that's still around. And then the 1968 pandemic virus, which was the one before 2009, that one is still around too. And that's more lethal. And depending on the season, some seasons the 2009 virus predominates, some seasons the 1968 and when the 68 is around, you get more lethality. So we're living with the influenza family. We haven't exterminated them. Right, we never Wh- will. Never exterminate them. Why? Well, because every shorebird in the world is infected with them. You know, gulls and terns and ducks and all sorts of things. No, but uh, why can't we develop uh, strong vaccines that defend against... Oh, we could do that, sure. 
Um, but that would not eliminate them right. from humans. Even if you had the best vaccine, you would never get rid of it in people because there would always be someone who's not vaccinated or in which the vaccine didn't work. You know, no, no vaccine is 100%. Right. So. Well, you just contradict yourself. You had the, you said the perfect vaccine. So. <laughs> imperfect, but then, imperfect. But then you oh. said, like, even if you had the perfect vaccine, yeah, yeah. Some yeah, people right. wouldn't get vaccinated. But I understand what you mean. So, yeah. but I actually was asking <laughs> how difficult is it to make vaccines like that for, it seems like it's very difficult to do that for the influenza virus. So it's really easy to make an old school vaccine. So the the way the first influenza vaccines were made was actually Jonas Salk worked on them in the 40s. You just grow lots of virus and you grow it in eggs, by the way, chicken eggs. Nice. Literally? And, wait, wait. Yeah, chicken okay. embryonated. So they get fertilized and there's a 10 or 12 day embryo in it and you put virus in it, it grows up and then you harvest it. You get about 10 mLs of fluid and then you take that, you treat it with formaldehyde or formalin, and it inactivates the virus so it's no longer infectious, and you just inject that into people. And that was the first flu vaccine that was made for the, the U.S. Army, actually, and then it got moved over to people. We still use that old school tech today. So you're, you're taking... Can you help me out here? Okay, so this is a good time to talk about vaccines. <laughs> okay, so you're talking about you're taking the actual virus, right? you put it in an egg, you let it grow up. It's very funny that you put it in an egg. It's very um, it's very poetic. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> how do you make it not um, infectious, not, uh, not effective or whatever? Not infectious. N not infectious, is that right. the right term here? Yeah. So, so how do you make it not infectious? You can treat it with any number of chemicals that'll disrupt the particle so it no longer it so does. that that step of disrupting the particle is that very specific to a, a particular virion particle? No, the same collection of chemicals you can use for all kinds gotcha. of and are which have been used for SARS-CoV-2 vaccines also. So, same technology. Okay, so what are there's several things to ask. So you called it old school in a right. way that's uh slightly dismissive like people talk about yeah. Windows 98 or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there so is there risks involved with it or is it just difficult to produce large amounts? Does no, it it's takes only, a lot it's, of eggs. It's very easy. I mean, you could do it in cells and culture, but eggs were convenient and it, in the 1940s we didn't have cells and culture. We yeah. didn't know how to do that, so we had to use something else. It, it's easy to do, but the process of inactivating the virus with a chemical makes it not a not the best vaccine you can make. The flu vaccines that we have today, which are mostly based on this uh, inactivation, this is called inactivated virus vaccines. Oh, so like the kind of uh, thing it presents to the immune system to train on is not it's not it's not it's not close to the actual virus. Yes, that's what we think. So that's why probably the flu vaccines are just not very good. You know. 60% efficiency at the best, right? Which is not really good. What, what does it mean? What is the measure of efficiency for a vaccine? Well, it's how it does in the general population at preventing influenza. At preventing? Illness, not infection. We usually don't measure infection when we're testing a vaccine. We just measure sickness. That's really easy to score, right? Mm -hmm. You, you, you and, do a trial and you say, if you feel sick, give us a call. <laughs> We'll tell so, you what to do. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what's what's sickness? Sickness is the presence of symptoms? 
So this is good time to say what a symptom is, okay? A symptom is what you only can feel. Only you can feel an upset stomach or a sore throat or that sort of thing. It's the lived experience of a symptom. Whereas a sign is something that someone could measure and tell that you're infected, like virus in your nasopharynx or something else, right? Signs and symptoms. And so in a vaccine trial, they tell you if you have any of these symptoms, and they give you a paper with the exact symptoms listed to make sure you're picking them up, right? So for flu, it would probably be fever, sore throat, cough. Mm-hmm. You call them and then they will do a PCR and make sure you've, you've got flu and not some other virus that makes similar symptoms. And then they would say, are you a vaccine or non-vaccine arm? And count up all the infections and see how the vaccine did, basically. That's so fascinating because... Um... The reporting, so symptom is what you feel. Yes, for sure. And uh, certainly the mind has a ability to conjure up feelings. Oh yes, absolutely. And so like culturally, you know, maybe there was a time in our culture where it was uh, looked down upon to, to, to feel sick or something like that, like toughen up yes. kind of thing. Yes. And so then you probably have, very few symptoms being reported. Absolutely. And then Absolutely. And now is like yeah. much more, um, I don't know, perhaps you're much more likely to report symptoms. Now it's fascinating because then it, it changes. Oh, it is definitely a perception because for, you know, your symptom may be nothing to me or yeah. vice versa, right? And so when you're doing this, it's a little bit of a imprecise science because, in, in and even it's a cultural thing in some countries, something that would make us feel horrible, they wouldn't even bother reporting. No, I didn't have any symptoms. So it's a little bit imprecise and it clouds the results. So if you can measure things, it's always better. But you start out with a symptom. And if you say, if someone tells you this virus, 20% of the people are asymptomatic, they don't report symptoms, that number is probably not a, a constant. It depends where you did the study. It could be different in China versus South America, Europe, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to figure, so I took two shots of the Pfizer vaccine. Right. I had zero symptoms. Wow. So, and I was wondering, well, see, but that's my feelings, right? This is not, because I, I felt fine. I was waiting. Did you have pain at the injection site? Uh, No, it was p- kind of pleasant. You, it, you felt nothing the next day? No. Nothing. Okay. No, no, t- no tiredness, no exhaustion, no... Uh, but see, like I have an insane sleeping schedule. I already put myself through crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. That said, maybe I was expecting something really bad. Like yeah. I was way, uh, and, and therefore didn't feel it. Then, I, But I also got um, allergy shots. Mm-hmm. And those, I was out all next day, like exhausted for some reason. So that, that gave me like a sense like, okay, at least sometimes I can feel shitty. That's good to know. <laughs> sure. And, and sure. then, then it, with, with yeah, the no. vaccine, it didn't. But the the question is like, how much does my mind come into play there? Are, are the expectations of symptoms, uh, the expectations of not feeling well, how does that affect the sort of the self-reporting no, of the symptoms? I think it's That's definitely a, a variable there, but um, there's certainly many people that don't feel anything after the vaccines. And there's some that have, a whole range of of things like soreness and fever, et cetera. Yeah. So, okay. You were talking about the old school development side, the egg. Right. What's, uh, what's, 
what's better than that? What's, what's so better? then the next generation of vaccines, which arose in the 50s, were what we call replication competent, where the virus you take it, and it's actually reproducing in you. Yeah, that sounds safe. <laughs> and it, it can be somewhat problematic, yes, as you might imagine, because you're not, once you put that virus in you, you have no more control, right? It's not like you have a kill switch in it, which yeah. actually would be a great idea to put in. Uh, like like nano, nanobots, what can possibly No, you could wrong? just put something in there. If you added a drug, you would, you would oh, shut it off, right? And people are thinking about that because now we're engineering viruses to treat cancers and other diseases, and we, we may want to put kill switches in them just to make sure they don't run away. Oh, interesting. So you could like deploy a drug that binds to the this this virus that would shut it off in the body, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. that would be the idea. You'd have to engineer it in. Anyway, these were the first one was yellow fever vaccine that was made because that was a big problem. And you, this virus and the way you do this back in the old day was empirical. So Max Tyler, who did the yellow fever vaccine, he took the virus, which is a human virus, right? And he infected, I think he used chick embryos. Mm -hmm. And he went from one embryo to another and just kept passing. He did that hundreds of times. And he, every 10 passages, he would take the virus and put it in a, a mouse or a monkey, whatever his model was. And then eventually he got a virus that didn't cause any disease after 200 and some passages. And then that was tested in people and it became the yellow fever vaccine that we use today. It, oh, he wow. selected for mutations that made the virus not cause disease, but still make an immune response. Wow. So those are called replication competent. We now have the polio vaccine, which was developed in the 50s after the yellow fever. Then we had measles, mumps, rubella. Those are all replication competent vaccines. And you mentioned, is that's, that's a good idea. They are all safe vaccines. The only one that has had an issue is the polio replication competent vaccine. It was called Sabin vaccine or oral polio virus vaccine because you take it orally. It's, it's a wonderful because you don't have to inject it. This mm -hmm. is the perfect delivery. You know, either intranasal for a respiratory virus or orally for polio. It goes into your intestines, it reproduces, and it gives you wonderful protection against polio. Mm -hmm. However, you do shed virus out. And that virus is no longer a vaccine. It's reverted genetically in your intestine. So you can infect others with polio. You could take that virus and yeah. put it into an animal and give it polio. And in fact, the parents of some kids in the 60s and 70s who were immunized got, got polio from the vaccine. The rate was about one in one and a half million um, cases of polio. So it's called vaccine-associated polio. And I always argue that we may not have picked the right vaccine. There was a big fight in the U.S. and other countries between the inactivated polio and the, and the infectious polio vaccines, which ones we should be using, because we found out that the infectious vaccine actually caused polio. And eight to 10 kids a year in the U.S. alone got polio from the vaccine, which looking back is really not acceptable in my view, although the public health community said it was to get rid of polio. So now we are, we're close to eradicating polio globally. Um, but this vaccine, the right polio is a problem. So now we have to go back to the inactivated vaccine, which is tough because it's injected. 
So, okay, so the, the, the basic high level, you know, how vaccines work principle is uh, you want to deploy something in the body that's as close to the actual virus as possible, but right. doesn't do nearly as much harm. That's right. And there's like a million, that's right. not a million, but there's a bunch of ways you could possibly do so that. So those are two ways. And now, of course, we have modern ways we can make mRNA vaccines, right? What's What are the modern ways? I, did you want to look uh, mRNA vaccine? That's, so that's, that's one of the, that's the most modern. But even before mRNA vaccines, we learned that we could use viruses to deliver proteins from a virus that you want to prevent. Mm -hmm. And so the Ebola vaccine, we took the spike gene of Ebola virus and put it in a different virus and we deliver that to people and that's called a vectored vaccine. Mm -hmm. And some of the COVID vaccines are vectors of different kinds. The most famous are adenovirus vectors carrying the spike gene into the cell. Can you explain how the, the vector vaccine works again? So we have, we take a, a virus that will infect humans, mm -hmm. but will not make you sick. In the case of adenovirus, the years and years of people studying it has told us what genes you could cut out and allow the virus to infect the cell, but not cause any disease. So instead of doing selection on it, you uh, you, you, you actually genetically modify it. Yes, you, you modify the vector, yeah. So you'd be much more precise about it. You'd be okay. very precise, and then you splice in the gene for the spike, and then you use that to deliver the gene and it becomes produced as protein, and then you make an immune response. And to vector it. is the term for this modified. Right. So Actually. we're now using viruses at our bidding. We're using them as vectors, not just for vaccines. We can cure monogenic diseases. That is, if you have, if you're born with a genetic disease, you have a, a deletion or a mutation in a gene, a single gene, we can give you the the regular gene back using a virus vector. Mm. So, but cancers too. We can cure cancers with vectors. Wow, really? Interesting. Yeah, I think in 10 to 15 years, most cancers will be treatable with viruses, yeah. Wow. And not only can we put things in the vector to kill the tumor, we can target the vector to the tumor specifically in, in a number of ways. And that makes it less toxic, right? It doesn't infect all your other cells. But it takes time to develop a vector for a particular thing because it requires a deep understanding. Yeah, in fact, we have a, about a dozen different virus vectors that have been studied for 20 years. And those are the set of vaccine vectors that we're using. So it includes adenovirus, vesicular stomatitis virus, which is a cousin of, of rabies, but doesn't make people sick. Um, influenza virus is being used as a vector and many, even measles virus. So we're, we're familiar with how to modify those to be vectors, and those are being used for, for COVID vaccines. Mm. And then, of course, we have the, the, new, the newest, which is the nucleic acid vaccines. So years ago, people said, why can't we just inject DNA into people? Take the spike and put it in a DNA and inject it. So people tried many, many different vaccines. And in fact, there's, there are no human licensed vaccines that are DNA vaccines, although there is a there is a West Nile vaccine for horses that's a DNA-based vaccine. So if you have a horse, you can give it this vaccine, but so, no sorry, human. Can you clarify, uh, does a DNA vaccine only work for DNA viruses? No, it can work for DNA or RNA, because remember, if for an RNA virus, we can make a DNA copy of it. Right. And it will still, when you put that DNA in a cell, it goes into the nucleus. Okay, right. 
So it's you're and just eventually you get you get proteins. For RNA made. vaccines, yeah. you're giving. Okay, I got it. So those didn't work for human vaccines, and there were many HIV/AIDS vaccine trials that used DNA vaccines, didn't work. And then a number of years ago, people started thinking, how about RNA? RNA vaccines. And you know, I first heard this, I thought, what? I've worked with RNA my whole career. It's so fragile. If you look at it the wrong way, it breaks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's being facetious, right? But you have to be very careful because your hands are full of enzymes that will degrade RNA. Mm-hmm. So I thought, how could this possibly work injecting it into someone's? It's an example of, I was skeptical and I was wrong. It turns out that if you modify the RNA properly and, and protect it in a lipid capsule, it actually works as a vaccine. And people were working on this years before uh, COVID came around. They were doing experimental uh, mRNA vaccines, and there were a couple of companies that were working on it. And so at the beginning of 2020, they said, let's try it. And I was skeptical, frankly, because I just thought RNA would be too labile, but I was wrong. So this is, uh, as we're saying <laughs> offline, one of the great things about you is you're able to say when you were wrong about intuitions you've had in the past, which is a beautiful thing for a scientist. Uh, but you know, I still think it's very surprising that something like that works, right? I, yeah, I am surprised. So you're just <laughs> you're just launching RNA in a protective membrane. Yeah, and then now one thing is surprising that the RNA sort of lasts long enough. Right for right. The, uh, in its structure, but then um, the the other thing is why does it work that that that's a good training ground for um, for the immune system? Is that is that, is that obvious? That well, that I don't work? think I don't think it's obvious to most people, and it, it's worth going into because it's really interesting. I mean, first of all, they they wrap the RNA in in fats in lipid membranes, mm-hmm. right? And the the particular formulation they test for years to make sure it's stable, you know, it lasts a long time after it's injected. And the two companies that make the current COVID vaccines, right, Moderna and Pfizer, they have different lipid formulations to get to the same. So that's a real part of it. And it's not simple. There are quite a few different lipids that they put into this coating. And they test to see how long they protect the RNA after it's injected, say, into a mouse. How long does it last? And the way it works is, these apparently, these lipid nanoparticles, they get injected into your muscle, and they bump into cells, and they get taken up. So lipid fat is sticky. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's greasy, mm-hmm. we like to say. And so your mem- your cells are covered with the greasy membrane also. So when these lipid nanoparticles bump into them, they stick, and they eventually get taken up. And they they figured this out right at the beginning. If we put RNA in a lipid nanoparticle, will it get taken up into a cell? And the answer was yes. It was just, let's try it, and it worked. So it's basically experiment. It's not like some deep understanding of biology. It's experimentally speaking. It just it seems to work. Yeah. Well, they had some idea that lipids would target this to a cell membrane. And remember, there's no, there's no receptor involved. Like the virus has a specific protein that attaches to a receptor. Right. It's not efficient enough to just bump around and get into a cell. Mm-hmm. That's what these things are doing, and they probably optimize the lipids to to get more efficient uptake. But it's not as efficient as a virus would be to get right. into a cell. So you have no specific. I mean, which is why 
it's surprising that uh, you can crack into the safe <laughs> with with a hammer <laughs> or, or or with some fat. I mean, th that's a that's kind of surprising. It's kind of amazing um, that that it works. But so maybe let's try to um, talk about this. So one of the hesitancies around vaccines or basically around any new technology is the fact that mRNA is a new idea mm -hmm. and it's an idea that was shrouded in some skepticism, as you said, by the scientific community. Because it's like, it's a, it's a, a cool new technology, surprising that it works. What's your intuition? I think one nice way to approach this is um, try to t play devil's advocate and say both sides. One side is why your intuition says that it's safe for humans and what arguments can you see if you could steal man an argument why it's unsafe for humans or not unsafe for humans, but the hesitancy to take an mRNA vaccine is justified. So many people are afraid because it's new technology and they feel it hasn't been tested. I mean, in, in theory, what could go wrong? This is the nice thing about mRNA is that it doesn't last forever as opposed to DNA, which doesn't last forever, but it can last a lot longer and it could even go into your DNA, right? So mRNA has a shorter lifetime, maybe days after it's injected into your arm, then it's gone. So that's a good thing because mm -hmm. it's not gonna be around forever. So that would say, okay, so it, it's sticking around for your lifetime is not happening. But what else could happen? Well, the let's see, the protein that's made, could that be an issue? And again, proteins don't last forever. They have a finite longevity in the body. And this one also lasts perhaps at, at the best a few weeks. Now, this is a protein that's made after the, 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 the RNA gets into the cell. Yeah, so the, the lipid nanoparticles taken up into a cell and the mRNA is translated and you get protein made. And there's also a question, and I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, like where, where in the body, so because it's not well targeted or I don't, I don't know if it's supposed to be targeted, but it can go throughout the body. That's one of right. the concerns. Right, so it's injected deep into your deltoid muscle, right, mm -hmm. your shoulder. And the idea is not to put it in a blood vessel, otherwise it would then for sure circulate everywhere. So they go deep in a blood vessel and it's, it's locally injected. And they did, before this even went into people, they did experiments in mice where they gave them a thousand times higher concentrations than they would ever give to people. And then when you do that, it can go everywhere, basically. You can find this, these nanoparticles in every tissue of the mouse. But that's at a thousand-fold higher concentration, right? So mm -hmm. I think at the levels that we're using in people, most of it's staying in the muscle. But sure, small, small amounts go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. is, could there be a lot of harm caused if it goes elsewhere? In Like, let's say ridiculously high quantities. I'm, I'm trying to understand what is the damage that could be done from an RNA just floating about. So the RNA itself is not going to be a problem. It's the protein that is the protein. encoded in it, right? So this, is an, this is a viral RNA which has no sequence in us. So there's nothing that it could do. It's the protein that I would say you, you could ask, what is that going to do?
And the one property we know about the spike is that it can cause fusion of cells, right? That's how the virus gets in in the beginning. The spike attaches to the cell mm -hmm. by this ACE2 receptor, and it causes the virus and the cell to fuse. And that's how the RNA gets out of the particle. But so wait, uh, I'm a bit confused. So with this mRNA vaccine, with the lipids and the RNA, there's no spike, right? The the mRNA codes for the spike. Oh, the mRNA codes, yes. the, so it creates the spike. It creates a spike. And so that spike could cause fusion of cells. Yes, except they modified the spike so it wouldn't. Got it. They made two amino acid changes in the spike so it would not fuse. So they understand it. enough which amino acids are responsible for the fusion. That's right. Interesting. This is so So cool. they could modify okay. it. So now it's not going to cause fusion. So that's not an issue. It's called the prefusion stabilized spike. Um, <laughs> cool. So the, the spike, when it binds ACE2, that, that top falls off and the spike, and the part of the spike that causes fusion is now exposed. And that doesn't happen in this yeah. mRNA vaccine. So those are the things that could have happened, but I think they're ruled out by what we've just said. But there's no better test than putting it into people, right? Right. And doing phase one, phase two, and phase three and, and increasing numbers of people and asking, what do we see? Do we, do we have any concerns? And so now it's been in many millions of people and we don't see most of the effects you see in a vaccine, you see in the first couple of months. Uh, things like the myocarditis with some of the vaccines, the clotting issues with the AstraZeneca vaccine, Guillain-Barre, you see those relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen small numbers of those occur, but um, other things we haven't seen and you know, you, you, you never say never, right? Right, so I mean, this is fascinating, right? It's like uh, I, I drink, uh, I put Splenda, in my coffee mm -hmm. and uh, has supposedly uh, no calories, but it tastes really good. And I, this, despite what like rumors and blogs and so on, I have not seen good medical evidence that it's harmful to you, but it's like, mm -hmm. it tastes too good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking like, there's gotta be long-term consequences, but it's very difficult to understand what the long-term consequences are. Uh, like the, and, and there's this kind of like distant fear or anxiety about it. Like this thing tastes too good. It's too good to be true. There's gotta be, there's no free launch in this world. This is the kind of feeling that people have about the long-term effects of the vaccine. That you mentioned that there's some intuition about near-term effects that you want to, uh, uh, remove like the diffusion of cells and all those kinds of things. But they think, okay, this travels to other cells in the body, this travels to uh, neurons or that kind of stuff. And then what kind of effect does that have long-term that's yet to be discovered? What do you make, I mean, for this vaccine, but in general in science about making statements about long-term uh, negative effects? Is that something that weighs heavy on you? Is that something we can kind of escape through just large scale experimentation with human with animals and humans? Well, if you're really if you're concerned about long term, then you have to do a long term experiment, right? right? And maybe you don't see something for 50, 60 years. So if someone says to you there are no long term effects of the COVID vaccines, 
they, they can't say that because they haven't done the long experiment, right? Right. There's right. always the possibility, but you have to weigh it. It's always, no, there's no free lunch, right? Mm-hmm. There's always a risk benefit calculation you have to make. You can have the study that goes for 50 years and, and then decide. But I guess what you're doing is, you, just like we said, um, I forget with which one, with polio, with rabies, I, I forget, but you're weighing the side effects yeah, polio, of right. the vaccine versus the effects of the virus. And like both of them, you don't know long-term effects, but you're building up intuition as you study, which what are the yeah. long-term effects? Like there, there's a huge number of people like, um, that have like, I, I don't want to say experts because I don't like the word, but people have studied it long enough to where they build up intuition. They don't know for sure. There's basic science being done, there's basic studies, but you start to build up an intuition of w what might be a problem down the line and what is not, biologically speaking. And so given that map, you then considering the virus, there seems to be a lot of evidence for COVID having negative effects on all aspects of the body, not just even respiratory, which is kind of interesting. Right. So the cognitive stuff, yes. that's terrifying. All kinds of systems evolve, yes. Uh, and then you look at the same mm -hmm. thing with the vaccine and there seems to be less of that. But of course you don't know if it's some kind of dormant thing that's just no, going to- You won't know. It's You have to make a judgment. And for a lot of people, they can't, right? Because right. they don't have, the tools to make the judgment. I totally understand that. And we have we have let people down a few times in medicine, right? And I know two very specific examples. The first polio vaccine ever made, the Salk vaccine was released in 1955. Immediately, within months, a few hundred cases of paralysis in kids who got it because it was not properly inactivated. Now you have to understand, parents were dying for a polio vaccine because kids were getting paralyzed every summer, yeah. 30,000 kids a year. And so they went and took it. They took the word of the medical establishment that it was safe and it wasn't. Big letdown, never gonna forget something. Although I think a lot of people today don't, don't aren't aware of that. I think that was a big problem that's everlasting. Then um, the attenuated vaccine that we talked about, the infectious, causing polio, yet parents continued to bring their kids to be vaccinated because they were said, this is the right thing to do. And I have to say, I was involved in several lawsuits where parents of a kid who got paralyzed from the polio vaccine decided to sue the manufacturer and get some, some money for their, for their kid. And so they got mad. And, and I think you could not, <laughs> the, the first issue could have been prevented, could have been prevented by inactivating it properly. I think the company just did the wrong thing. The second, we had evidence for, and we should probably have not used that vaccine any longer, but I think that destroys public confidence. But those aren't- They're not long-term. the minority right? of cases. This is a minority. This is a very rare event, yeah. But nevertheless, science as an institution uh, didn't make corrections in that case. No, they didn't. Uh, and so what do you make of- that I mean, it's very unfortunate that those few things can destroy trust. 
But I don't think that lasts till today. I think today is a different era, right? Yeah. And most people don't know about those stories. I mean, I tell yeah. them to you because that's what could happen. I think yeah. it could happen today. Yeah. Um, if you look at the history of the, the polio vaccine, the U.S. Public Health Service wanted kids to be vaccinated. Yeah. So they did things that probably weren't correct to get the vaccine back online, right? But they they did it and they pushed it through. Um, so we're today, the, the question is, what do we do today? So I can look at, as we just said, I can look at what might happen and I can make reasonable decisions about the likelihood of them happening. And I can also say, I don't want to get COVID of any kind because I've seen how nasty it can be and i decide i'm taking the risk whatever small of, of a long-term effect i'm going to take the risk my family took the risk and many other people did of a vaccine of getting vaccinated because uh, i think it's very small but i understand where people can't make that decision and that begs the question what would they need to make a decision so if you're concerned about an effect in 40 years we're not going to know for 40 years yeah, so I think if I were to speak, because I spoke, I, so I talked to, like I mentioned offline to Joe Rogan on his podcast yesterday, I talked to him all the time about this. I think the concern is less about the uh, long-term effects, mm -hmm. like on paper. It's more about the, the like um, people like Anthony Fauci and, people at the top are simply misrepresenting the data or like are are not accurately being transparent, not collecting the data properly, not reporting on the data properly, not being transparent, not representing the uncertainties, mm -hmm. not uh, openly saying they were wrong two months ago, like in a way that's not like dramatic, but uh, revealing the basic process of science when you have to do your best under uncertainty, just also just being inauthentic. There's a, there's a sense, especially with like a younger generation now, there's a certain way on the internet, like the internet can smell bullshit much better than previous generations could. <laughs> and so they, they see there's a kind of um, inauthenticity that comes with being uh, uh, like representing authority. Like I am a scientist, I'm an expert, I have a PhD, I have four decades of work, yeah, therefore yeah, everyone yeah. should listen to me. Got it. And somehow that maps to this feeling of, well, what are they hiding? If they're speaking from authority like this, if everyone is in agreement like this, that means they all have emails between each other. They said, we're gonna tell this, this is the message we're gonna tell the public. Then what is the truth? the actual truth. Maybe there's a much bigger uncertainty. Maybe there's uh, dead people in the basement that they're hiding from from bad mRNA vaccine experiments. Maybe they're, and then, and then the, the, the conspiracy theories start to grow uh, naturally when there's this kind of mistrust of the that. So it's less about kind of um, like a deep concern about long-term effects. It's a concern about long-term effects if we find out that there's some secret stuff that we're not being told, it all lends on that. So what what the heck, I mean, I so I put the blame not on the data, but basically on the leaders and the commun communicators of the science at the top. Well, uh, to that, I would say all the data, as far as I know, are made public. So you can 
dive into it. And I know a lot of people ask me questions and I just say, it's right here in the data. And I know a lot of people can't do that. They can't dive into it. But that's one solution for people who are able. It's Now you could argue, well, maybe they've left data out. Well, then not even I can help because then they're hiding it from me too. And I think that's highly unlikely. I think for the most part, the FDA requires the release of all the clinical trial data, right? So, okay, what? So this clinical trial data, that's one thing. So that's the data that we should be focusing on, right? Is it, so yeah. there's there's a lot of different data sets here. So there's preclinical data, which yeah. is everything that was done in the lab before this vaccine ever went into a human arm. It's all the cell culture work that we talked about a little, yeah. experiments in animals. All of that is publicly accessible. Most of it gets published. And then there's the initial drug filing which is huge, the books of, you can get that and look at it, right? This is me sort of asking sort of difficult questions here. It's okay. So there's a lot of money to be made by makers of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So for these companies, and obviously there's a distrust of those folks too. They've done a lot of really good things in this world, but the incentives are such that you want to sweep stuff under the rug. If if you're not 100% pure in your ethics. And how hard is it for for that data to be fabricated, uh, manipulated? Like what's your intuition for the the pretrial stuff? I think when you you start uh, fabricating, then you get inconsistencies, which are pretty easy to pick up. When you're talking about some large scale things of this nature. Because then you can, look through the data very, you're going to, I mean, it will require looking very carefully, but you will see inconsistencies from one trial to another. And uh, that might ring a bell that something's been done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like the moon landing thing. I, I think it's like sometimes like going to the moon is easier than faking. <laughs> right. Uh, in in, in right. the sense it might be, it might be easier to do a large scale trial and get an uh, effective vaccine versus faking it. But you know, when okay. you brought up the for-profit issue, I think that is always been an issue. I've always felt that having your health depend on for-profit industry may not be the best solution. And I don't know how else to do it. People tell me I'm a dreamer that thinking that you know all medicines could be nonprofit, but I also think that the world should have one health system that takes care of everyone, right? Because there are some countries that can't and other countries have an excess like us. So I wish we could do that. Well, the, the argument is the speed at which the vaccines for COVID were produced would never happen in a non-profit system, would never happen in mm. a non-capitalist system. Oh, I could set up a vaccine production institute in the US that would get the vaccines done because you just need to put money into it. That's what made these vaccines get done, money. They poured billions of dollars and they got it done quickly. But if I set up a nonprofit institutes of vaccines throughout the U.S., staffed with really talented people, pay them well, keep them motivated, you'll get your vaccines. No, but (laughs) that's the thing with capitalism is that uh, the selection of who to hire, like good, when you say good people, capitalism has a machine that fires people who are not good and selects people that are good coming from the Soviet Union, the dream of communism is, is similar to what you're saying, uh, broadly defined. It certainly doesn't work yeah. in the broad, the question whether it works in the healthcare uh, space, 
you know, th there is some aspect to the machine of capitalism being the most effective way to select for good people to effectively yeah. produce the thing. And, but then of course, a lot of people would argue the current, even the current healthcare is not with like regulations. There's some weird mix where there's a lot of opportunities for inefficiencies. There's a lot of opportunities for bureaucracy. So you, you have like the worst of, of all worlds. Can't there be some intermediate that works? Because, yeah. I mean, the, the other issue that we haven't mentioned is that politics gets thrown into this yes, and, that's and that really messes up and it should never be mixed with healthcare, but it's, it is because a lot of funding comes from the government. So. That's another confounding factor, but I, I I really think I could make a a vaccine institute that if someone didn't do well I'd fire them. No, you're not going to stay if you can't do your job and do it well. You don't give them incentives, but it doesn't have to be the two extremes. I think it has there has to be a solution that people don't have this mistrust for a a company making huge profits off of a drug. But you know what? It's, it's funny. It seems that vaccines and antivirals bear the brunt of this criticism, yet there are many other pharmaceuticals that people rely on yeah. of all sorts. They don't seem to question and have issues with those, and they have far more side effects than vaccines. It's a very strange how we're, we're picking that way. But I should also say that when, you know, if you have one big uh, vaccine institute, one of the other like sets of uh, vaccine conspiracies I mean, I would say they're a little farther out into the into the wild set of ideas, but it's you know that's one way to con control the populace mm -hmm. is by injecting substances into them, right? People, I mean, part of that, oh, funny enough, is probably has to do with needles versus uh, something you put in your mouth. Yeah. But there's yeah. something about the government, especially when it's government mandated injection of a substance into you. I don't. <laughs> It doesn't, I don't care what the science says, if it's 100% effective, 100% safe, there's a, there's a natural distrust of what, like even if this is effective and safe, giving the government mm. power to do this, yeah. aren't they gonna start getting ideas down the line for, you know. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I, I think that they can barely govern. I don't think they're gonna do that, well, but you don't have to take Unless you're a federal employee, you don't have to take a COVID vaccine. Right? Yeah, but that's that largely has to do, not largely, but there is an individualistic uh, spirit, you know, to the to the American people. There's this like, you're not going to take my gun away from me. Sure, you're not going, and I think that, you know, that's 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 something that makes America what it is. Just coming from the Soviet Union, there's a power to sort of resisting the overreach of government. That's quite interesting, because I'm a believer, I, I hope that it's possible to have, to strive towards uh, a government that works extremely well. I think at its best, a government represents the people and functions mm. in the similar way that you're, you're mentioning. But that like pushback, even if it turns into conspiracy theory sometimes, I think is actually healthy in the long arc of history. It can be frustrating sometimes, but that mechanism of pushing back against power, against authority, can be healthy. I, I agree. I think it's fine to question the vaccines. What I have issue with is that many people put out incorrect information 
and I'm not sure what their motivations are. Right. And it's very hard to fight that because then it's my word versus theirs. And I'm happy to talk with people about any of their concerns, but if you start getting into the stuff that just isn't true, then we have a problem. The thing I struggle with is conspiracy theories, whatever language you want to use, but sort of um, ideas that challenge the mainstream quote unquote narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, given our current social media and internet, like the way it operates, they can become viral much easier. There's something much more compelling about them. Sure. Like I have sure. a secret that about the way things really work that becomes viral and that's very frustrating because then you're not having a conversation on level ground the you know when you're trying to present scientific ideas and then there's conspiracy theories the conspiracy theories become much viral much faster and then you're not just having a discussion on level ground it's um that that's the frustrating part that it's not an even discussion can i just say one more yeah. thing so I mean, the internet is here to stay, so we're gonna have to figure out how to <laughs> yeah. deal with it, right? But from my perspective, I was skeptical that these mRNA vaccines, that any COVID vaccine would be ready within a year. Yeah, That's amazing. Me too. Plus, these M the way I look at the mRNA vaccine as a scientist, it's gee whiz to me. It's amazing that it worked. And I, I think the data are great, so I want it. <laughs> Well, so as a scientist, I wanted one of the really sad things again with me too, as a, as a scientist or as a admirer of science. Is, um, I don't know if it's politics, but one of the sad things to me about the previous year is that I I wasn't free to celebrate the incredible accomplishment of science mm -hmm. with the vaccines. I was very skeptical that it's possible to develop a vaccine so quickly. So. It's unfortunate that we can't celebrate how amazing humans are to, to, to come up with this vaccine. Now this vaccine might have long-term effects. That doesn't mean this is not incredible. Why, why, um, why couldn't you celebrate? Because um, like, I would love to inspire the world with the amazing things science can do. And you know, when you say something about the vaccines, they're not listening to the science. A lot of people are not listening to the yeah, science. Sure. What they hear is, oh, you're um, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat and you're social signaling, doing some kind of signaling. No, I think that the vaccine, you're talking about injecting something into you. And maybe you're right that the rhetoric is like, you better take this or you're, or you're dumb. Yeah. You know, it's not the right approach. I've seen, actually, it's kind of interesting. I've seen both sides kind of imply that. Mm. So the... The people who are against the vaccine are dumb for not trusting science. And the people who are for the vaccine are called dumb for trusting science, the scientific <laughs> and institution. And nobody wins, yeah. <laughs> and they both kind of have a point. <laughs> like, because you can always, it's like uh, yeah. is the glass half full or half empty because you can always look at, um, like science from a perspective of certain individuals that don't represent uh, perhaps the not greatest leaders, mm -hmm. uh, almost like political leaders. There's a lot of, you know, I've oh, yesterday went on a whole rant uh, <laughs> against, well, I said a lot of positive things about Anthony Fauci before I went on a rant against him. Because <laughs> uh, ultimately 
you know, I think he failed as a leader and I know it's very difficult to be a leader, but I still wanted to hold him accountable for that uh, as a great communicator of science and as a great leader. What, what do you think he didn't do right? I'm curious. Uh, so the core of the problem is the uh, several characteristics of the way he was communicating to the public. So one is the general inauthenticity uh, two is a thing that it's very hard to put into words, but there's certain ways of speaking to people that sounds like you're hiding something from them. Mm. That sounds like you're full of shit. That's the authenticity piece. Like it sounds like you're not um, really speaking to the full truth mm -hmm. um, of what you know, and that you did some sh shady shit in your past. You're trying to hide. So that's a way of communicating that I think the internet and people in general are becoming much better at detecting. Yeah, it's like you said, they're good BS detectors. Yeah, good BS detectors. <laughs> uh, then, uh, But contributing to that is yeah. speaking from authority. Yeah. Speaking um, with, with, uh, with authority and confidence where neither is deserved. So first of all, nobody's an authority on, on this new virus. Right, we're facing a deadly pandemic, and in, especially in the, in the early stages, it was unclear how deadly it would be. It's, it was unclear, probably still unclear, fully how it's transmitted, the full dynamics of the virus, the, the full the full understanding of which solutions work and not, mm -hmm. how well masks of different kinds work, how easy or difficult it is to create tests, how many months or years is going to take to create a vaccine. Uh, uh, how well in history or currently do uh, quarantine methods or lockdown methods work? How, you know, what are the different data mechanisms that are uh, like data collection mechanisms that, that are being implemented? What are the clear plans that need to uh, happen? What the epidemiology that's happening? What is the uncertainty around that? Um, then, then there's the geopolitical stuff with, with China, mm -hmm. you know, like what, uh, uh, I, you know, personally believe there should have been much more openness about the the origins of the virus, whether leaked from a lab or not. I think communicating that you're open to these ideas is actually the way to get people to trust you. That you're legitimately open to ideas that are very unpleasant that go against the mainstream. Yeah. Showing that openness is going to get people to trust you when you finally. Uh, decrease the variance in your uncertainty, like decrease uncertainty and have, we still have a lot of uncertainty, but this is the best course of action. Vaccines still have a lot of uncertainty around them. mRNA is a new technology, but we have increasing amounts of data and here's the data sources and like laying them out in a very clear way of this is the best course of action that we have now. We don't know if it's the perfect course of action, but it's by far the best course mm -hmm. of action. And that would that would come from a leader that has earned the capital of of trust from people. I mean, I think in recent history, the worst pandemic is 1918 flu, yeah. right? But that's mainly because we didn't know what to do. We didn't have many tools at our disposal. And that was tied up with World War One. That's right. That's right. So the the leadership there, I mean, but it, I don't know what what is a lot of deaths, right? And any one person is someone's family, so to them it's a lot, right? 
But that logic, we don't apply that logic generally because there's a lot of people suffering and dying throughout the world and we turn turn the other way all the time. And that's the story of history. So saying saying you all of a sudden- What bothers uh, me though, I mean, personally, I don't like anyone dying anywhere, but and especially considering what technology we're able to muster, yet we still kill each other. It's just a dichotomy to me. Yeah, but I mean, this is the, what is it, Paul Farmer. Uh, there's these great stories. I mean, that's that's the, that's the um, that's the burden of being in healthcare, being a doctor, is you have to help. You can't help but help a person in front of you who's sure. hurting. Sure. But you also are burdened by the knowledge that you helping them, you spending money and effort and time on them, means you're not going to help others, and you cannot possibly allocate that amount of time to everybody. So you're choosing which person lives and which person dies. Sure. And you're doing so, the reason you're helping the person in front of you is because they're in front of you. And so the reason right now we care a lot about COVID is because the the eye of the world has turned to COVID, but we're not seeing all the, all the other atrocities going on in the world. They're not necessarily related to deaths, they're related to suffering, human suffering, which you could argue is worse than death. <laughs> prolonged suffering. Yeah, of course. You know? So right. th- th- there's all th- there's all of these questions, and th- and the the fundamental question here is: Are we overreacting to COVID in our policies? So the, the, this is the um, when we turn our eye and care about this particular thing and not other things, are we dismissing the pain that business owners who've lost their businesses are going to feel? And then the long talking about long COVID, Mm. the long-term effects, economic effects on the millions of people that will suffer, that suffer financially, but also suffer from their dreams being completely collapsed. So a lot of people seek gain meaning from work. And if you take away that work, there's anger that can be born, there's pain. And so what does that lead to? That can lead to the rising up of charismatic leaders that channel that anger towards destructive things mm-hmm. that's been done throughout history. So like, you have to balance that with the policies that you have in COVID. And then, I mean, uh, uh, very much my main opposition to uh, Fauci is not on the details, but the final result, which is I just observe that there's a significant decrease in trust in science as a, not not the institution, but the various sort of mechanisms of science. I think science is, is both beautiful and powerful and the reason why we have so many amazing things and such a high quality of life. Mm-hmm. And distrust in that, that the thing we need now to get out of all the troubles we're in, continue getting out of the troubles we're in is science, the scientific process, broadly defined like innovation, technological innovation, scientific innovation, all of that. Distrust in that, is is uh is the, totally the wrong thing we need, and so anybody who gets in, who uh, causes a distrust in science to me, um, uh, you know, um, mm. carries the responsibility of that, and uh, should be in because the response should I mean should be fired, should be should be or at least uh, openly have to carry the burden of that of having caused of that kind of level of mistrust. Now, it's maybe unfair to place it on any one individual, but you have to, uh, I think in your pocket, you said the, the buck stops at the top. Like 
the leaders sure. have to, to no no there's, there's a clear leader here yes absolutely so even if it's not directly <laughs> his fault you know he has to carry yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, carry the price of that do you think we should at this point say okay we have vaccines you can decide whether you take them or not let's move forward maybe you can help me understand this because it seems like why is that not the right solution? Completely open society. Mm -hmm. The vaccines, at least in the, in the United States, as I understand, are widely available. So this is the American way. You have the decision to make. If you have mm -hmm. uh, conditions that make you worried to get COVID and go to the hospital, then you should get vaccinated because here's the data that shows that it's um, much less likely for you to die uh, right. If if you if you get vaccinated, if you don't want to get vaccinated because you're worried about a long term effects of vaccine that you don't have to, but then you suffer the consequences of that, and that's it. So I, here's what I think is driving. The, I think it's all about kids, right? Because they're going to go back to school in the fall, and many of them can't be vaccinated, right? So if they get infected, they they do have less frequency of disease, but it's not zero they do get sick and they can have long-term consequences. And at that age, it would be a shame, right? And it's not even their choice. They can't decide to get vaccinated or not because they can't have access to it. So I think that would that's what would drive my efforts to try and get more people, at least in schools, vaccinated. But I might be wrong. It may not be that. So can you kind of dig into that a little bit? So there's... Uh... So you're saying that there should be an effort for increased vaccinations of of kids going to school, just not for societal benefit, but for the benefit of each individual kid, right? So right now, kids under 12, right, are not yet vaccinated. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. And it's going to be, it's not going to be in time for school opening that they get vaccinated. Um, and then... I mean, I suppose the teachers are all going to be vaccinated. It makes sense for them to do that. But I'm just worried the kids are going to be transmitting it amongst them. And the, many states don't allow a mask mandate in school. So I think that's what's driving the larger narrative in the U.S. to protect kids. It's kind of what I hear from Daniel Griffin, because mm -hmm. increasing numbers of kids are being admitted to hospitals now because they're the they're becoming the major unvaccinated population they're hanging out over the summer and that's just going to get worse in the fall and so you could have a lot of kids with long covid and disabled their entire lives right so and of course hearing from people who are vaccine hesitant i hear exactly the kids statement but they're saying they don't want the long vaccine <laughs> the long-term effects of the vaccine to affect the kids that's the of the of this new vaccine which, which i would say is as, we, as I said before, you can't say never, but we do know that long COVID exists. We don't know for how long because we've only looked out six or eight months. We know that exists and the frequency is increasing. It certainly exists in young kids and we have no idea about long vaccine effects. So I think they have to make their decision based on that. But yeah. But your question is, why don't we just open up Society say, here we have these vaccines if you want to protect yourself. I think it's mainly the school that's driving the whole narrative. 
That's my opinion. In which direction? Not to open up? or No, to open up, but to try and get, you know, there are efforts at the federal level to get people vaccinated, right? But see, uh, how high are the risks for kids? I mean, as uh, my understanding was it's, I mean, yes, it's non-zero, but it's very low. For in, in Yeah, but what is the numbers? Now 70,000 hospitalizations so far in kids as of last week. So yes, it's low, and, but... I, I, the polio was low. Polio was twenty, thirty thousand kids a year paralyzed, uh, and well, many people have actually argued that that vaccine wasn't necessary. You know, that wasn't a substantial but, enough so, health so, problem. But paralyzed is different than hospital. So what, well, what does COVID, hospitalized mean? Long what, COVID. But this the long COVID question. I mean, this is the open question of what yes. is long COVID in kids. What is that? So, well, a lot of the same issues, cognitive issues. Uh, motor issues, respiratory, GI dysfunction. How long? We don't know. I mean, it could end in a year. As you know, there are other post-acute infectious sequelae that we know about. You know, chronic fatigue, ME-CFS, is thought to be a post-infectious sequelae, which has gone for many decades now in many millions of people. This could be another another one of those. So uh, I'm just saying it might be worth erring on the side of not letting the kids get infected. Yeah, but well, I'm trying to keep an open mind here and I appreciate you doing you doing the same. Of course, I uh, lean on definitely not requiring people to get vaccinated, but I do think getting vaccinated is just um, the wiser choice. If looking at all the different trajectories before mm. us, getting vaccinated is... Um, seems like from the data, it seems like the obvious choice, frankly. But I'm also trying to keep an open mind because some things in the past that seemed obvious would turn out to be completely wrong. So I'm trying to keep an open mind here. So for example, one of the things, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is uh, antiviral ideas. So ideas outside of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So ivermectin something that uh, Brett Weinstein and a few others have been talking about. There's been a few studies. Some of them have been shown not to be very good studies, but nevertheless, there seems to be some promise. And I wanted to talk to Brett uh, about this particular topic for two reasons. One, I was really bothered by censorship of this. That's a whole nother topic. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm bothered by censorship. This is a gray area, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I, it just feels like that should not have been censored from YouTube, like discussions of ivermectin. We can we can set that aside. The the other thing I was bothered by the lack of open mindedness, mindedness on exploring things like ivermectin in the early days, especially when at least I thought the vaccine would take a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just ivermectin; it's um, really seriously at a large scale, rigorously exploring the effectiveness of masks. And the big one for me is testing. Like the fact that that wasn't explored aggressively to lead to mass manufacturing like May, 2020 is as absurd. Anyway, uh, so I was bothered by these solutions mm -hmm. not being explored and not by now having really good ivermectin studies. So can I talk about ivermectin? Yeah, I would love that, yeah. Sure, so full disclosure, my wife, worked on ivermectin at Merck for 20 years, <laughs> okay? So, they just want people to know, but I didn't, 
I don't talk to her all the time about it. And anyway, she hasn't been at Merck for a long time. As you know, ivermectin is a very safe drug used to treat certain parasitic infections. Yes. Right? And it is approved. It's amazing. You can take one dose a year and be protected against river blindness in Africa, in certain parts of Africa. It's remarkably effective. And so um, it's quite a safe drug at the doses that are that are approved. Now, uh, early last year, a study was done, I believe in Australia, which showed in cells in the lab, if you infect with SARS-CoV-2 and, and put ivermectin in, it would inhibit the virus production substantially. It was quite clear, right? But the concentrations they were using were rather high and could not be achieved by uh, the, the, the approved dosing. So you would need to do a dosing study to make sure it's safe. And, be, and the reason is that ivermectin binds to receptors in your brain, and it can have high doses. A lot of some people take high doses inappropriately, and they have neurological consequences. So, if you needed ten times more ivermectin, you'd have to make sure it would be safe in people. So, this is a question of safety too, right? So, my I think it has always been the case that it should have been properly studied, but it wasn't. There are lots of trials here and there, lots of improperly controlled trials where someone would just treat some patients and say, hey, they all did fine, but have no control arm. And there were some controlled trials, but they were very small. So right now, a 4,000-person trial is enrolling to test in a randomly controlled trial setting, whether it works or not. There's still plenty of cases that you can do that. So you can ask whether and there, whether there are any side effects. I think that's completely fine. And if it says it works, then we should use it. In the meantime, I always tell people, if you want to use ivermectin, you can do it off-label. It's FDA approved. Mm. And if your physician says, I'm going to give you this off-label, I don't have a, a, any objection, yeah. but I don't know if it's going to work. And I, I, a friend of ours last week in New Jersey got COVID, he went to his local hospital, and their regimen was remdesivir, dexamethasone, ivermectin. It's written, that's what they do for every COVID patient. They just give mm -hmm. it to them automatically. And um, wow. so he's he recovered. So who's to say it was or were not was not ivermectin, right? So I don't have any strong ideological opposition. I just think it should be test it for what you want to use it for. Yeah. And that's being done, and I think that's fine. Is it strange to you that uh, ivermectin or other things like it weren't tested aggressively in the beginning? Like, from a broad scientific community aspect, you know, I can be a little bit conspiratorial, and this is what people talk about with ivermectin, yeah. is with the vaccines, there's quite a lot of money to be made. With ivermectin, there's not as much money to be made. Is is that too conspiratorial? Like, why didn't we try more solutions in the beginning? Well, um, well, all the money was put into vaccines, right? right? Very little was put into antivirals because the decision was made at a very high level, probably involving Dr. Fauci. Yeah, we're going to put twenty-four billion into vaccines, right? Yeah, and I think part of the reasoning is they give you years worth of protection, whereas an antiviral works and you have to keep yeah. dosing and so forth. But ivermectin is not trivial in this. I, I agree it should have been tested early on, but we had a, a really bad experience with hydroxychloroquine, which we can right. talk about too. Um, ivermectin is very hard to synthesize. Most drugs you synthesize chemically. You, you 
devise a formulation and a synthesis and they do it, they scale it up and it's fine. Ivermectin is really hard. And so what they do instead is they take the culture of the bacterium that makes it and they grow it up and they ferment it and then they purify it. And Merck owns the bacteria. A number of years ago, two employees of Merck stole it and left the company and tried to market it and they were arrested and they got put in jail. So they protect it very carefully. So you can't just make it. Mm. If you do, it's incredibly expensive. And now India, it's very cheap, apparently. They use it uh, quite liberally there. And I don't know how they're they're making it. Maybe they've licensed it from Merck and so forth. But that's why it hasn't been tested more widely, I think. There's complexities in terms of getting a lot of it and manufacturing a lot of it. Yes. Okay. So what, what was the other, the hydrochloroquine? So hydroxychloroquine was also shown uh, early on to inhibit virus in cell culture. And that's not surprising. Hydroxychloroquine, of course, is used for malaria. And what it does, it, it, when, you're, when your cell takes up things from the, from the plasma membrane, including viruses, it goes through a pathway called the endocytic pathway, which involves a vesicle moving through the cell. And as it moves through the cell, its pH drops. Mm -hmm. And that lets a lot of viruses out, actually. And hydroxychloroquine blocks that. So it blocks infection with a lot of viruses. So the problem with those early studies that were published is that they were done in kidney cells in culture, where the only way the virus can get in is through the endosome. And hydroxychloroquine inhibits that, and that's why it inhibits in kidney cells and culture. But lung cells and respiratory cells of humans where the virus reproduces can get in two different ways. It can get in from this endocytic pathway, which is inhibited by hydroxychloroquine, or it can get in at the cell surface, which is not inhibited by hydroxychloroquine. So when you treat patients, it has no effect in the lung because the virus can just bypass it. And all the usage initially were based on uh, the, the studies done in kidney cells and culture. So that, that was just wrong, scientifically incorrect, yet it drove a lot of, and today many people still think they should be taking it, but so like the that not panning out kind of resulted in a loss of optimism about other similar things panning out. Well, that out. and many other drugs, repurposed drugs were tried, right? A lot of HIV antivirals were tried. I think the problem with, with hydroxy, I think hydroxychloroquine influenced the ivermectin narrative, right? People thought that the data was being hidden about hydroxychloroquine. So they said, well, they must be doing the same thing with ivermectin. But with hydroxychloroquine, it just scientifically could not work as an antiviral. Mm. The, the other problem that is more broad that is important to point out is that when you, when you have COVID and you need an antiviral, it's usually because you can't breathe and you go in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Because if you're mildly ill, you're never going to go to your doctor and ask for an antiviral. And the problem is when you can't breathe, it's no longer a viral issue. It is now an inflammatory issue, and no antiviral in the world is going to help you. So if that's why remdesivir doesn't work very well, because it's mainly given intravenously to people who go in a hospital. Um, if you get ivermectin in the hospital, it's not going to do anything for, for reducing virus, because by that time, you have very little virus to begin with. You have an inflammatory problem that you need to treat in other ways. So this is why a lot of the antivirals failed because they're used too late. Yeah. What you need 
is a pill you take on that first positive test when you have a scratchy throat. Mm -hmm. You get a PCR in 15 minutes, I'm positive, take a pill, boom, that's going to inhibit it. If you wait till you can't breathe, and that's why the monoclonals even don't work if if you're in hospital that well, because it's too late. And the the approach now is if you're in a high-risk group, if you're over 65, if you are obese or have diabetes or any other comorbidities, your first sign of a scratchy throat positive, you get monoclonals. Then they might help you. But if you wait till you go in a hospital, it's too late because the viral curve drops. After that first symptom, within three days, you're, you're no longer shedding enough virus to transmit. Drops really quickly. So that's the reason a lot of these antivirals failed because they were tested in hospitalized patients. And we have nothing but remdesivir now, unfortunately. So it was the wrong approach. We should have been giving it to people who just tested positive from the start. But or just even for preventative and see. You could do that too. Yeah. But I have to say the other issue is uh, this molnupiravir is a drug in phase three now. It's an oral antiviral. It looks good. If we go ahead with just one, we're going to get resistance within a few months and it will be useless. We need to have at least two or three drugs that we can give in combinations. And we know that because that's what took care of HIV. That's what took care of HCV, hepatitis C virus. It really reduces the emergence of resistance. Joe Rogan got quite a bit of heat recently about mentioning a, a, a paper and a, a broader idea, which I didn't... I don't think is that controversial, but maybe we can expand on it. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that vaccines uh, create selective pressure for a virus to mutate and for variants to form. What, um, okay. first of all, from a biological perspective, can you explain this process? And mm -hmm. from a societal perspective, what are we supposed to do about that? So let's get the terminology right. So as we talked about earlier, viruses are always mutating. So no vaccine or no drug makes a virus mutate. Right. That's the wrong perspective which you look at. Right. It. Got it. The, what, the, what the immune response is, is putting pressure, selection pressure on the virus. And if there's a one particle with the right mutation that can escape the antibody, that will emerge, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what happens with influenza virus, right? We vaccinate every year, and there are not a lot of people that get infected, so they get natural immunity. And then the virus is incredibly varied. It mutates like crazy, and there's in some person somewhere, there's one variant that escapes the antibody, which has been induced either by infection or vaccination. It can be both. Mm -hmm. And that drives the emergence of the new variant, so the next year we need to change the vaccine. So... I would say both natural infection and vaccination, sure, select for variants. Absolutely. There's no question because they're inducing immunity. Now, what happened last year was uh, at the beginning of 2020, very few people in the world were immune as the virus first started spreading. But you can see in the sequences of those isolates from the beginning of 2020, you can see all of the changes that are now present in the variants of concern at very, very low frequencies. They were already there, but there was no selection for them to emerge mm -hmm. until November when we now had many millions of people who had 
mostly been infected, but also some vaccinated. Then we saw the alpha variant emerge in England, probably because of immune selection. Now the, the virus that had the change that evaded the antibody had an advantage, and that virus drove through the population. So, so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing all these variants are simply antigenic selection. So, so the, the variants, the mutations that are at the core of these quote unquote variants, they were always there all along the vaccine or the infections did not create them. No, the infections don't create them, but they're it's selected. That, it's like the vaccine wipe out a lot of the variants, right? And then um, by being immune, uh, by making your body immune to them, and so, but some of them survive. Yeah, and the, and exactly. Then, and and those, then there's another those... tree that's built, and it's unclear what that tree leads to. I mean, it could make things much worse or much better. And we don't we don't know? Well, with flu, we see year after year the virus changes. We change the vaccine. We deal with it. We change it again. There's but, an unending. But see, that's series. a very different story. If do you think? Do you think COVID will be, um, with some likelihood, uh, like the flu, whereas basically variants will never be able to um, uh, eradicate it? It will never eradicate it in any case, ever. <laughs> well, come up with a vaccine that uh, makes you immune to enough variants to the, where there's not enough evolutionary, like, room. Well, if you cut down the number of infections, then you reduce the diversity, sure, yes. right? The problem is if, let's say you're a cynic and you say, well, vaccination is just selecting for variants, so let's stop it. But then you're going to have infection and that's going to select for variants. Yeah. And there, the more you're more likely to get very sick because we know the vaccines <laughs> are really good at preventing you from dying. So that's why it still makes sense to use vaccines because they prevent you from dying. Yeah. That's the bottom line. But can we ever make a vaccine that deals with all variants? Absolutely. And the reason I say that is because people who get <clears throat> naturally infected with SARS-CoV-2, they develop COVID, they recover. If you, if you give them one vaccine dose, they make an immune response that handles all the variants that are around right now. All of them much better than people who've gotten two doses of vaccine. Mm. For some reason, their immune response has suddenly broadened after the infection vaccination, and they can handle all the variants that we know of so far. So that tells me we can devise a strategy to do the same thing with a vaccine that makes a really broad vaccine that'll handle uh, all the variants. Well, you actually, uh, on the virology blog, I don't know if you're the author of that, but- the, I am, uh, oh, <laughs> I am, yes. Oh, the, the blog, yes, but uh, there's a particular post that's talking about reporting on a paper, mm -hmm. the, the mix and match strategy. Oh, yes, that's one of my co-writers, uh, Trudy Ray, yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's an interesting idea that there's some uh, early evidence now that uh, mixing and matching vaccines, mm -hmm. like one shot of Pfizer and one of like Moderna or something, that creates a much better uh, immunity than uh, does two shots of Pfizer. Yes, I think that's worth exploring, absolutely. And this is relevant. What we're doing with influenza, you know, instead of having to vaccinate people every year, why can't we devise a vaccine which you'd get once in your lifetime or maybe once every 10 years, okay? Yeah. So the, the spike of influenza, it's a long protein, kind of like the spike of 
SARS-CoV-2. It's stuck in the virus membrane. And the very tip, that's the part that changes every yeah. year. That's where the antibodies bind. But the stem doesn't change. And if you make antibodies to the stem, they can also prevent infection. It's just mm -hmm. that when people are infected or with the current vaccines, they don't make many antibodies to that stem part. But we're trying to figure out how to make those, and we think they would be broadly protective, and you'd never be able to, or more rarely be able to, have a variant emerge that that uh, escaped it. And I think we can do the same thing with with coronavirus too, for sure. Can I ask you about testing? Sure, <laughs> sure. So you mentioned PCR. What kind of tests are there? The antigen test. Uh, what What are your thoughts on each? Maybe this is a good place to uh, to also mention like viral load and um, the history of the virus as it passes through your body in terms of the okay uh, what's being tested for and all those kinds of things. So the the first tests that were developed were PCR polymerase chain reaction. They're basically nucleic acid amplification tests, and they were very first ones. They stuck the swab all the way up into your brain almost. <laughs> they don't do, I had that done a couple of weeks ago. Oh my gosh, it's really nasty. But now they do an anterior nares swab. They get a little, they get a bunch of cells and some mucus, which has virus and parts of virus, stick it in a test tube, and then they run a reaction, which it, by the way, involves reverse transcriptase because it converts the viral RNA to DNA, and then you amplify it. And you can specify what part of the viral RNA you want to amplify. And then a machine will detect it and it can be done in 15 minutes. But you're detecting pieces of RNA, not infectious virus. Mm -hmm. So we're measuring viral RNA loads, right? And a common mistake that many people who should know better, you know, physicians and scientists of all kinds, they think that indicates how much virus you have. It doesn't. It's a diagnostic of whether you have bits of RNA in you, and it probably means you're infected, but you can't use it to shed light on what's going on. And, and I'll tell you why in a bit, but first we have to explain some other things. So until you get to about a million copies of RNA, so you can measure the copy number in this test, this PCR test. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a number called CT or cycle threshold. The test, the way the machine works, it goes through cycles. And every cycle, it amplifies what you put in. And the more cycles you need to see something, that means there's not a lot of RNA there. Mm -hmm. So if you, see a, if you do a test and you have a cycle threshold of 35, you have very little RNA in you. Contrary, if you have a cycle threshold of 10, you have a ton of RNA. And you only took 10 cycles to detect it. And you can extrapolate from that number the number of copies you have per sample, say per swab. And if you don't have a million, you're not infectious. Mm -hmm. You're not going to infect anyone. So in the early days, no matter what CT, whatever, what PCR result you had, they would quarantine you. And that was wrong because you're not shedding. You don't mm -hmm. need to be quarantined, but but wasn't thought through properly, right? And that's where you had like 14 days or something like that. 14 like, days, which is now we know is too long because you don't shed for that long yeah. in a normal infection. Now it's 10 days should be fine. So what happens is you get infected, you don't know it of course, the virus starts to grow very quickly and within four or five days you reach a peak 
of sh- of shedding, you're making a lot of RNA, and you may be asymptomatic. You're shedding; you can infect others, and then you may or may not have your symptom onset. So you shed for a couple of days before symptom onset, and then within three days, four days, the viral RNA crashes, and you're no longer shedding. You're no longer transmitting. So that's the one kind of test we have. It can tell you if you're infected at the moment, but it won't tell you if you're going to be infected tomorrow, right? Because if you're negative today, you could be positive tomorrow. You just might be on, uh, in a different part of the incubation period, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one test been used the most. You can now get 15-minute versions of them in a walk-in or whatever. Fine. Then there are antigen tests, which look for the proteins that the virus is making. So as it's reproducing in your nose, it's not only making genomes, it's making proteins. And so these you can buy in the drugstore and... These would have been great if they had, you know, Michael Minna last year had the idea that if we could make a little stick, a little piece of paper that you would suck on and it would tell you if you're infected or not, if this could cost less than a buck, mm-hmm. everybody could test Which themselves. Which can cost less than a buck, by the way. Yeah, but th- they were never made, right? Right. Uh, they're never mass manufactured. So th- his idea is to do like daily tests. So yeah, daily. Supposed- and then the kid's going to school, he's positive or she's positive. Well, if it's cheap enough, you just take another test because they have a certain error frequency. If it's yeah. positive twice, you stay home, and the next day you try again. And this, I think this would have revolutionized because the PCR tests are more expensive at the time and they take longer to do and so forth. But uh, th- that never happened. But now we do have $20 Binax now and others that you can buy, and people buy them. And See, but that can still happen, right? And this is the very frustrating thing to me because... I'm worried about variants, but I'm also worried about future, much more deadly pandemics. Like, Mm -hmm. I know we kind of said, yes, COVID, lots of deaths, but like it could be a lot worse too. And so I'm thinking, what is going to be the right response for the future pandemic of its kind? And what's the right response for continued number of variants? And some of the variants might be deadlier or more transmissible. Well, we we can the, the antigen tests will pick up the variants. That's not a question. The PCR may be influenced by changes, but you can quickly ad- adapt the primers that you use. So but that's, that's not what I mean. Like to me, all these discussions about vaccines and so on. Vaccines, we got very lucky that they took so little time. Right. And and you have to be aware, no matter what, that there's hesitancy with the vaccines in this country. Before, I mean, yeah, you have to, that's a reality. You can't just be like magically saying that that's you're, right. you're going to overcome that. So, and I don't think there's any hesitancy on cheap tests, tests at tests. home. <laughs> I agree. I think if someone, so the question is, if someone tested positive, would they stay home? That's the question. What if their what if their job depends on them going in? I, I mean, that's well, I you have know. to look at sort of aggregate. Yeah, how many people would decide? And I think. Um, Again, a lot of that is in leadership, but I think a lot of them, I would say most people stay home. I think uh, that Mina had the idea and it would have changed the whole situation for sure if it could have been made when we talked to him last spring, I think, or summer. Um, We would have gotten around a lot of the issues that we're in today because I think people would have stayed home and not transmitted. And I think it's still valuable to this day. In the fall, if we don't have vaccine uptake, we could just test kids every day, yeah, and get her and keep them home when they're infected. Yeah. It cuts, it's, and we don't have it. But I think, and I'm not privy to what was going on, but 
I don't think a lot of emphasis was put on testing early on. You know, the CDC developed the first one. It was flawed. They had to recall the kits. I mean, that's a fiasco. They should have had 100 companies making the tests initially, right? So for the future, I think what we have learned is we need to have a rapid antigen test right off the bat that's doable. You can't do it in a day like you can for PCR because you need to make antibodies to the protein that you're looking for, and you need to do those in animals. But you can do it in weeks, and we should be ready for that. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, to me, that's obvious. That's obviously the best solution. Uh, Second to that, if we understood how well masks work. Like, maybe let me ask you this question. Let's put masks aside. How well do we understand how COVID is transmitted? There's there's droplets of different sizes, uh, aerosols, tiny, tiny droplets. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's a very difficult thing to understand thoroughly. Uh, so it seems like it's transmitted like both ways. It's unclear how exactly. So how 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 much do we understand, and why is it so difficult to understand well, it fully? I think it's clear that it's transmitted through the air, mostly. It's not touching. We thought initially it would be a lot of touch, but very little of that. It's through the air. And when you talk, mainly when you talk, you you expel a lot of droplets, right? Even the plosives that your foam thing here mm-hmm. is, are meant to pee, right? right? That you send out little yeah. sprays and those have viruses in them. And the big drops fall to the ground and the little ones can go 100 feet or more, right? Mm-hmm. But the little ones also have less virus in them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure, well, we certainly do not know how much virus you need to be infected. Right. But it's probably at least several thousand particles, if not more. And it could be that for most people, the tiny droplets don't have enough virus to infect someone else. But there's one observation about this virus that's really interesting. And that is that 80% of transmissions are done by 20% of the people, of the infected people. Not every infected person transmits. That's been borne out in multiple studies. And in fact, there was a study at University of Colorado where they quantified the viral RNA loads in all the swabs that had been done of students for like a six-month period. And most of the infectious virus, most of the RNA copies were found in 15 to 20% of the people. The mm. rest had really low, and they're probably that's probably why they don't transmit. So those are the ones that might get vi- enough virus in the tiny droplets to be able to infect someone at a distance. And I think that's entirely possible. Why is it hard to study? You can't do it in real life because you don't know who's infected. And if you do this, there's not a controlled environment to measure droplets and so forth. You'd have to do it in a laboratory situation. If you use an animal, you just don't know what the relevance of that is to people. You'd have to use human and do challenge experiments. And you know we, we don't do that at this point, at least not for this virus. So that's why it's hard to know what's going on. So we have to make inferences from epidemiological associations where you're studying, say, transmission in a household where people are stuck in the same rooms together and you can get an idea of what kind of droplets were involved. In so that. that makes it much harder to, if you're if you're leaning on epidemiological stuff as opposed to like biophysics or something like that, the, the, the mechanics. Very hard. So 
very hard. That makes it, but that makes it really hard to then develop solutions like masks, to ask the question, how well do masks work? Because then to answer that question, you can lean on epidemiological stuff again, like looking at populations that wear masks versus don't wear masks, as opposed to sure, like sure. actually saying, uh, like from an engineering perspective, like what kind of material and what kind of tightness by which amount decreases the viral load that's received on the other end. But you, you, some experiments have been done with masks and just droplets with no virus in them, right? Right. Yes. And you can measure the, the efficiency of different mask materials at keeping those in. So right? if I say that this mask stops 70% of this or larger size droplet, mm -hmm. that leads to this percent decreased transmission. Um, and also on both the the generation and the the, the the receiving end and the giving end. Sure. So, so how well do masks protect you from others? How well do you do masks protect uh, others from you? Like all of those things seem like they could be more rigorously studied. There's no doubt about it. And now is the time because once this is over, Nobody's going to do it. Nobody's going to care. No. Right. But it seems like to me, so tests is one thing, but masks, like the good masks, whatever the good means, whatever that means, like some level of a quality of material on your face, if it's shown to actually like thoroughly shown to work well, mm -hmm. that seems like an obvious solution uh, to re reopen society with if you have a good understanding of how well they work. Because if you don't have a good understanding, if there's a lot of uncertainty, that's when you get, and you have people speaking from authority, that's when you start getting the politicization of the solution. Of course, of course. No, the data, there are some data, Most they're mostly epidemiological, and they show some effect in some countries, right? But they could be way better. Yeah. And, but the, the fact that they are not, perfect, then people take advantage of and say, well, look, they don't work that well, so I'm not going to wear it. I think, as you said, people can use it as an excuse. But even if it works, so Daniel always says that a mask will cut down transmission by 50 to 60%, and then distance will do another 30%. Yeah, those numbers are made up, though. <laughs> I mean, they're not made up, but they're estimates. Absolutely. And many of them are made uh, uh, based on models, right? Yeah. We make this model, and let's say the mask cuts down this much. What's what will be the effect on? It? Right. I mean, yeah, they're models, and it's for the same reason. I I don't believe the transmission uh, var of the variants because it's all based on statistical models as well, not biological experiments done right. in the lab. So that in that sense, vaccine data is much better than mask data. <laughs> For sure, for sure. So, so my my problem with the mask data, which I always thought was fascinating, I stopped talking about it. I was in a paper about masks. I stopped talking about it because what what started happening is masks created assholes on both sides. The people that were like in Silicon Valley, the friends of mine that were wearing <laughs> masks, the way they look at others who don't is like well, that's that's a whole nother issue, but right? That's, yeah, but that what that I understand that happens when you don't have solid science understood they th now yeah. start judging you like you're a lesser human being you're not only uh dumb but you're just 
you're almost like evil. You're doing bad for society by not wearing a mask. And then the people looking in the other way uh, are seeing you for the asshole that you're being for judging them uh, unrightly. So they almost want to say F you by not wearing the mask. And there's this division that's created that, that was heartbreaking to me because masks like testing is a solution that was available early on. Mm -hmm. And if understood well, it could be deployed in a mass scale. And it seems like there's some historical evidence for other viruses where it does yes, very well. That's correct. And so, and so, like, the fact that this was politicized, um, yeah, was a little but bit heartbreaking. You can find in the literature studies, mostly of healthcare workers and influenza, where you can actually, because you see the people every day, they can sample them, you can actually see what masking does. And some of them, show an effect and others do not, then that's the problem. That's yeah. like any trial, sometimes if it's not big enough and then people latch on to that, see, it doesn't really work. But I think the main issue is that in January, both CDC and WHO said, masks don't work, don't use them. That was the kiss of death for masks mm -hmm. because when they then changed their mind, they didn't say we screwed up. They yeah. just said, wear masks. If they had said, we made a mistake, we were wrong, I think more people would have worn masks, but they didn't. Yeah. And like you said, admitting you're wrong is like <laughs> a real big part and of it. I also it. think almost the better way is not just saying you're kind of saying you're wrong, but in January saying, like revealing the uncertainty under which we operate. Like actually like uh, reveal what was done uh, in, with the Spanish flute at the, the beginning of the previous century. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's a lot of mass controversy then too. It went back and forth. And that was actually the source of a lot of distrust there too. <laughs> so, and then uh, look at influenza, like how is it effective with that? And just reveal this, we're, we don't we don't know, but uh, with like with some probability, this is the best option we got right. currently. And then, and then in a month or two, adjust it saying that, you know what, our like uncertainty decreased a little bit. We have a better idea. Like that was a, a that was an incorrect estimate, but reveal that you're struggling. It's not like this weird binary clock that goes one direction or the other. You're struggling in with uncertainty and like trusting. People maybe criticize me sometimes for this, but I I, I think most people are actually intelligent. <laughs> like trusting the public to be intelligent. Uh, with if you give them if you have transparent and give them uh, information in a real authentic way. Like, don't look like you're hiding something. I think they're intelligent enough to use that data to make decisions. It's the same thing as with the testing, is if if you put that power in the people's hands to know if they're sick or not, they're gonna make uh, unmask the right decision, I think. It, it, it's uh, that, the masks and the testing has been uh, a bit heartbreaking. I think it's a good point though, that most people don't seem to have an objection to testing. <laughs> it's a good point. Yes. Yeah. And then obviously Makamina makes that point brilliantly. Yeah. And still there's very little excitement around that. But he said he was going to do it. I don't understand. I mean, I haven't spoken to him since then. So I don't know why. He's what... pushing it. Well, I mean, but he can't do it alone. He has to get. So one of the, one of the resistances, FDA doesn't like cheap things. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to approve it. So it makes the mass manufacturer uh, like uh, with emergency exceptions, all those kinds of things, very difficult. And then there's not much money to be made on it without that. I don't know. That, I, I think there's just economic pressures against it. And because so much investment, uh, 
was uh, placed on the vaccines. And obviously mm -hmm. there's an incentive mechanism there where the companies, sure, you know, lobbyists sure. and all those, <laughs> there's this machine that says, uh, um, arguing for tests is difficult because the thing that's worked for most severe viruses in the past is vaccines. Now we have vaccines, why the hell would you need tests? At that time, like, why the hell do you need tests when we can be working on vaccines? It seems like the obvious thing to be working is the vaccines from, from their perspective, mm. but it's not obvious at all to me. I think you should have both. I think you have vaccines and good testing and that covers you really well because you're always gonna have people who don't get vaccinated. I don't know if you've been paying attention to this. There's a guy named Brett Weinstein. There's a guy named Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. They they have good representation, <laughs> I would say, of uh, of two sides of a perspective on vaccines. So, from Sam Harris's perspective, it's obvious that everybody should uh, get vaccinated, and it's irresponsible mm -hmm. to not get vaccinated. I think he represents a lot of people's belief in that, and then. Uh, Brett is talks a lot about ivermectin, but also talks about uh, hesitancy towards the vaccine for for people who are healthy, who are people who are younger, that kind of thing, and uh, saying we should consider long term effects of uh, the vaccine in making this calculation. What do you make about this conversation? Some of it happens on Twitter, <laughs> some of it happens in the space of podcasts. Um. Do you pay attention to this kind of thing? What's your role in this? What What do you hope is the way to resolve this conversation? Do you think it's healthy? Well, a conversation is always healthy, but to make definitive statements is not because it suggests you have information that you don't have. So, um, you know, we talked about long-term effects. I think you need to balance those versus long-term effects of the disease and you can make your decision. I don't think... You need to tell everybody to get vaccinated. I think you need to present the case. You say, here, we made good vaccines. Here are the safety profile. Here's the risk-benefit balance. And you should decide. You're a smart person. You should decide. Um, now, companies are going to do differently, right? Companies may say, you have to be vaccinated to work here. My employer, Columbia, said, we have to be vaccinated to work in the fall. And if you want to be a student, you have to be vaccinated. So you decide whether you want to go or not. But- the the idea that um, you should make a decision based on long-term effects, there is no evidence, right? So how can you make a decision when we don't have evidence, whereas we do have evidence that there are long-term effects of getting COVID? So I don't think that's a fair argument, and it just makes people scared to say that. Yeah. But on the other hand, for someone to say it's a no-brainer and to denigrate people for not being vaccinated, that's not the approach either because they're going to dig in and yeah. say, I'm not doing this because you tell me to, right? I think the middle ground is to say, take a bit of both and say, here are the potential issues and here are the benefits. And this is what I would do. And you have to just decide on your own. I'd leave it to them. I say, you decide. And if you don't want to, you know, it's up to you. You don't have to get vaccinated. And you'll probably get infected at some point and maybe you'll be okay. <laughs> But here's the best available data, and it looks like the vaccines are pretty, uh, a pretty damn smart solution. They seem to work. I think you tell people what you did, right. and present both sides calmly. And I think digging in, you know, as a, like in a debate, I don't think that's terribly useful. Yeah. So that's my view. 
I, I mean, people come to me all the time and ask me, what, I'm worried, what should I do? And I say, what are you worried about? Let's talk about it and go through it calmly. And if they want to still take ivermectin, I said, it's fine, it's your choice. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with that. I love that. I, I love that's the way you think. Uh, people should definitely listen to This Week in Virology <laughs> and follow your work is, is brilliant. I, I've been really enjoying it lately. It's it's like, uh, it's my favorite way to stay in touch with the the happenings of COVID. Obviously you, you put in a lot of other stuff in there, but. We used to do other viruses before COVID. It was quite interesting. Um, and I'm trying to slip other viruses in uh, because I think they're informative um, in many ways, and we're going to do more and more of that. But I have to say, I canceled. Usually, I, re I record on Tuesday and Friday, and I canceled today so I could be with you. It's a huge honor. <laughs> I really appreciate that. No, no, it's fine. I, um, I think a couple of other people were going to be away anyway. So, <laughs> so I do a lot of different pods. They're all on YouTube, and I also do a, a, a live stream on Wednesday nights uh, on YouTube, which you can find. And that's where people can come and ask questions. We don't have an agenda. We just start. And by 30 minutes in, there's 700 people with questions that I can't even get through because there's so many of them. And I'm actually astounded that so many people are have really good questions. Most of them are reasonable and, and they come back every week. So it's a great, it's turning into a great uh, forum to have a nice discussion. And the YouTube channel is called what? So you could search for my name, which is Vincent Racaniello. It'll turn up. Or um, my handle on YouTube is ProfVRR, P-R-O-F-V-R-R. Uh, have you read uh, The Plague by Camus by any chance? Years ago. <laughs> Years ago. So, I have to re read it again. That's it, really relevant. Well, yeah. let me sort of ask you a question about it. It, it describes a town that's overtaken by a plague it's blocked off from the rest of the world. And it kind of reveals the best and worst of human nature. That's like how people respond to that, sort of the encroaching, the, their own mortality, mm -hmm. their own death on the, on the horizon. I think one of the messages in the book that ultimately like love for others. So it's like a lot of people want to become isolated and they hide from each other. But mm -hmm. ultimately the thing that saves you is, is, is love, which is one of the things I've, just watching this pandemic, you know, with the distance, with the masks, that's all fine. But there's a distancing from people of that, that, that um, the tension, the breaking of the common humanity between people. That's one of the reasons I, when I came to Austin earlier this year, just to, to visit, I fell in love with the city because even with the masks and the distance, mm. there was still um, a, a camaraderie, like, a, like a, I don't know, just a love for each other, just a kindness towards each other. And uh, that's what I took away from the plague. Um, mostly it's told the story of the doctor who basically gives in and uh, just gives himself as a service to others. And that, that love is, is the thing that liberates him from his own conception of mortality. The fact that he's here, he's going to die. Mm. What do you think about this? The effect of the virus, we talked a lot about biology, but the effect of the virus on the, the, the fabric of the common humanity that connects us. Well, that's what a pandemic does. It really cuts that, right? Because small outbreaks are local. They don't have global effects. But when you have something this big where pretty much nobody escapes, and not just 
making people sick, it changes your life, right? People lose jobs, they change jobs, they move somewhere else. They have all kinds of disruptions. You know, kids can't go to school. It really shows you. I mean, I always like to say a tiny virus can bring earth to its knees. A tiny virus that you can't even see and that most people don't even think about most of the time. And the real effect is not just sickness. It's what it does to people because in the end, we are animals and most animals like each other and they interact, they have great social structures, and that makes them do well. And I guess the exception is people in AI, right? <laughs> they, can be, they can be on their own. <laughs> well, that's why you build robots that you fall in love with. That's right. And so I think when a, when a, the real story is what it does to society, for sure, which has ramifications way beyond the number of people dying and the vaccines and the tests and all of that. And this one has really made a big rupture and you could tell not now so much i think being out and about now things look pretty normal except you know for some people wearing masks you would now never know i mean the airport this morning was completely jammed people going and they're all on vacation they're all wearing shorts right mm -hmm. so they're they're back to normal it's august but last year it's really different in new york where you're used to lots of people on the street it was eerie it's just quiet but, you know, under it all, people are still, most people help each other when they have to, right? Most people are willing to, uh, if something happens to someone, to reach out and help them. You know, there are always exceptions where people are mean, and that's, you know, that's just the way animals are. We're not the only ones that can be mean to our own species. Yeah. But I think most of the motivation for everything that was done is to help other people. I mean, I, th I do think that the vaccine manufacturers, maybe not the leaders, but the people working in the labs really wanted to get this out mm -hmm. quickly and to help, help people, people. Yeah. right? Yeah. I think at every level, people who are contributing really wanted to help other people and, and feel proud that they're able to do that. So there's, I view it as, you know, we're never going to be 100% good because animals are not. Evolution made us, I mean, we're, we're lucky we somehow rose above by having incredible brain and so forth. But a lot of our base instincts are animals, who, you know, they chase each other and and have alpha males and all that stuff. And, and we always have a little bit of that in us. But we do have some uh, humanity that this really ripped up. It really did. And I think for me, someone who studied viruses for over 40 years, it's just amazing that an invisible thing can do that, right? It, it goes back to the thing you found fascinating, which is a virus affecting human behavior. Yes. Or uh, behavior of the organism. <laughs> yes. So, you know, humans can make weapons and do harm and you can see that, but this you can't even see. Yeah. You can't, and look what it has done. And it'll do it again. There'll be more. I just, I wish we would be more prepared because we know what to do. We know we should be making antivirals, vaccines, masks, testing masks, making test mod uh, modalities that we can really quickly redesign. But after SARS-1, all that went out the door. People didn't do anything, and that's why we're in this situation. So, I, you know, people ask me this all the time. Are we going to be ready for the next one? And I always say we should be. We have all the information we need to know what to do. But somehow I think people forget 
Uh, that said, sometimes uh, we we really step up <laughs> when the tragedy is right in front of us. We do. On the catastrophe. So I don't know. Somehow humans have still survived. The fact that we had nuclear weapons for so many decades and we still have not blown each other up, whether by terrorists or by nation, is, amazing. is, is quite surprising. <laughs> That's <laughs> so. always, after reading the Pentagon Papers, it's even more amazing, right? <laughs> so I don't know how we do it. I, I tend to believe it's there's a... Uh, there's that, you know, at the surface, you notice the greed, the corruption, the the evil, but the core of human nature, the human spirit is is uh, one in the scientific realm is curiosity and more deeply is is kindness, compassion, and like wanting to do good for the world. Like I, I believe that desire to do good outpowers all the other stuff uh, by a large amount. And that's why we don't, we have not yet destroyed ourselves. We kind of there's a lot of bickering, there's a lot of wars on the surface, but underneath it all, there's there's this ocean of of uh, uh, love for each other. I mean, I think there's a evolutionary advantage to that, <laughs> and uh, it, it would be a good explanation why we still haven't destroyed ourselves. Oh, we had so many opportunities. Yeah, if you look at all the wars in history, so many. Yeah, I was just my son was telling me about the Ottoman Empire, right? I mean, it's just, you know, war after war, and then other countries splitting up countries with no regard to who's living where, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, how, how can these people do this? Yeah, it's <laughs> fascinating. Human history is fascinating, and we're still young as a species. We have a lot- They're Very young, yeah. More time to go and a lot more ways to destroy ourselves. Do you have advice? Like you said, you have many decades of research mm -hmm. and an incredible like, career and life. Do you have advice for young people about career, about life, people in high school, people in college, of um, how to live a life they can be proud of? So I, what I like to do is tell people, don't plan it because I didn't plan anything. Everything I did was one step at a time. You don't have to plan. I just found things that were interesting to me and so I my father was a doctor and he wanted me to be a doctor but I was not interested in taking care of people I, I learned that but I couldn't say no to him so you know I was a biology major in college and I I graduated and um, I didn't have anything to do so I liked science so I got a job in a lab and it was very exciting and uh, that led to everything else that I've done one step at a time. And I think the most important thing you can do, well, there are two important things. You can be really curious all the time. You mentioned curiosity. I think curiosity is essential. You have to be curious about everything. And if you are, you're never gonna be bored. Yeah. <laughs> and so people who say they're bored, I say, you are not curious. You should just think about things and say, look at something and say, how does that work? Or what, what is it doing? And how do they get there? And you'll never be bored. And the other thing is when you find something, which may take time, it's fine. Um, you have to be passionate about it. You have to put everything into it. And that's what I did with viruses. So I, I think they're amazing. And I tell my classes, I love viruses. They're amazing. And people think I'm morbid because obviously they kill it, they kill people and I shouldn't love something that but that's not the point. That's not what I mean. I love them in the way they have emerged and how they work and, and so forth and all that we don't know about them. So you need to be curious and passionate 
and don't plan too much. And just find something that you don't call a job. As <laughs> someone said on the live stream last week, yeah. I wish I had a job I, I liked as much as you. And I said, it's not a job. I never looked at it as a job. It's my vocation. It's my passion. If it's a job, then you're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah, something that doesn't feel like a job. So you said uh, viruses are kind of um, passive, non-living, you could say. Uh, or even cells are passive. And then humans are kind of active. We seem to be making our own decisions. So uh, let me ask you the why question. What do you think is the meaning of this life of ours? Oh, there's no meaning. It just happened. It's an accident. Um, I think there's no life elsewhere because this is just a rare accident that happened in the right <laughs> conditions. I mean, people all think I'm wrong because there are billions and billions of stars out there, right? So there's a lot of opportunity. There's no meaning. It's just a, a what do they call it? A, a perfect storm of events that yeah. led to molecules being formed, and eventually, I mean, it took a long time for life to evolve, right? Yeah. But it's just driven by conditions. If something emerged that worked, it would then go on to the next step. There's no meaning other than that. The only difference is that we. And I think many other animals can probably, we, we have the ability, we're sentient, right? We can influence what happens to us. Uh, we can t take medicines, right? We can alter what would normally happen to us so we can remove some of the selection pressure. Uh, but I think everything else on the planet just goes, you know, looks for food and uh, give a lot of offspring so you can perpetuate. It's just a natural biological function. Yeah, they're, they're much more directly concerned with survival. I think sure. humans are able to contemplate their mortality. We, we can like see that even if we're okay today, we're eventually going to die and we're, we really don't like that. <laughs> so we try to come up with ways to uh, push that deadline farther and farther away. Well, we have really, I mean, we used to die in our 30s, right? And now it's 70s, 80s. Well, most of us used to die in our in, in the first few weeks. That's true. <laughs> yeah, infant death. I, I always tell people the only thing that's 100% is death. It's yeah. the only thing in, in the world that's 100%. Do you I never, think about your own mortality? No, I never think about it. I'm just enjoying <laughs> day to day. And I don't really? think Really? You, you work on viruses. You don't contemplate your own mortality, given no. the, the, the deadliness of the viruses no, I, I, around I us? I never thought COVID would kill me. No, I never was afraid of that. Not at all. I um, I've mostly feared for other people getting sick, especially people who could die of it. I didn't want that to happen to them. But I always thought that it's it's obviously an, an not a realistic uh, viewpoint not to be worried, because many people are. But I've been relatively healthy. Um, they should sequence my genome because it works really well and. Have a good immune system. Maybe you'd be the first Im immortal person. I don't think so. Be a I don't first. think so. I don't okay. think so. I think that uh, biologically, you just can't. You know, the ends of our chromosomes keep getting shorter and shorter, and that's eventually what kills us. Um, so you just can't keep going on. But um, that's fine. I, I don't need to. I understand from the vampires that it's not good to live forever. <laughs> I guess make the most of the of the time you got. That's the uh, bacteria live a much shorter time, so we got that on bacteria. Yeah, bacteria are just you know little bags of chemicals that that split, so they have no they have no uh, 
stake in the matter at all. It doesn't doesn't bother. And I, I think you have to go a long ways before you get into some kind of consciousness. But yeah, it's weird that this bag of chemicals has a stake in the matter. Like our human body is a uh, consciousness is a weird thing. Not just in us, but they make half of the oxygen on the planet. Twenty percent of the oxygen comes from bacteria. Yeah. Um, and they made in the beginning of Earth, they made enough oxygen to start oxygenation going, life going. I mean, it's they have an incredible role. It's all an accident. It just happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Vincent, like I told you, I'm a huge fan. It's a, it's a big honor that you would talk to with me today. Thank you so much for coming down. Thank you for spending so much time with me. Um, and thank you for everything you do in terms of educating about viruses, about biology, microbiology, and everything else. I can't wait. Everybody should check out Vincent's YouTube, watch his lectures, listen to the podcast. It's truly incredible. Thank you so much for talking to Vincent. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Vincent Racaniello. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Isaac Asimov. The saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.